Astonishing Legends would like to thank Simply Safe, Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, Purple, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Some ancient practices date back to the very beginnings of humanity. They have no readily identifiable origins, and we can trace them through history to a point. But ultimately, we come to a dead end when we try to figure out where they began. Scrying is one of those practices. One that will either be utterly familiar to you, or so foreign that you'll be unable to even guess at what it means. Put simply, scrying means to see. We can all understand sight, but the fascinating thing about sight is that it's not always about using our eyes. There are many ways to see things, and many things to be seen beyond the reality we all readily accept day in and day out. Some believe you can scry into the past, present, and future. Your efforts to do so may yield secrets not attainable by more mundane and traditional methods of information gathering. Well, if you've ever read or seen the story of Snow White anyway, turns out the evil queen in that story is practicing a fictionalized version of scrying whenever she speaks to her magic mirror, the place she turns for knowledge beyond even a witch's grasp. There are many varied scrying methods, which you'll hear about tonight, but a good deal of them involve gazing at a reflective surface such as a crystal ball, a bowl of water or oil, or a black mirror, for example. But the mirror doesn't have to be black. It can be an ordinary mirror, too, even a small handheld one. You might think, it's all about reflections then. Well, actually, no. Some scryers practice an almost complete darkness. It's more complicated than simply staring at a reflection. But when it works, if you're good at it, answers to questions seemingly beyond your reach can be at your fingertips. It's learning how to get good at it that's the trick. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The scryer does not seek reflections, but visions. Donald Tyson, page 152 of the Kindle edition of Scrying for Beginners, the Welland Publications. Join us tonight as we gaze into the world of scrying. That we are. Well, that was a nice little break at the top of the year. And look at that. Uh, We're already into February of 2021. Pretty crazy. Time is flying already. A couple of quick things. Our right-hand woman, Tess, has taken up co-managing our Instagram account and is finally making amazing use of Instagram stories, which I had not been doing so much. In fact, Mm. right now, she's doing a new one every day. Yeah, and it's pretty great stuff. So if you're on Instagram, you don't follow us, then now's the time to check it out because boring old Scott has been kicked to the curb. Hey, uh, but yeah, I I can and will still be posting, but Tess will be keeping it interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, and before I forget, those of you who follow us on Twitter and Instagram will no doubt note the presence of a new rescue dog in my house named Nixie, which is actually short for Phoenix. Well, what's the origin uh, story behind that? What's the backstory on the name there? Uh, Well, as I said, she's a rescue. She was actually abandoned outside a burned down trailer, I guess, and left Mm -hmm. in a crate 
where she was found after several weeks. So the rescue folks named her Phoenix. Uh, She's a little skittish, but she is super cute. And due to popular demand, she'll be making appearances on our social media. Fear not, however, we still have Lulu, the original astonishing dog. And although she asked me where to get a bus ticket out of town when Nixie arrived, she seems to be slowly adjusting to her (laughs) new roommate. Yeah, we'll see about that. All right, folks. Well, thanks to our new schedule, you'll be finding us in a lot more places online than we've been in the past. In fact, we just finished a hangout with the Legenders in our private Facebook group, and we're working on some new stuff for Patreon as well, so keep your eyes peeled for that, including a special behind-the-scenes 90-minute Zoom interview with Seth Breedlove and Rich Hannum about one of Small Town Monsters' newest films, Mothman Legacy. You're about done putting that together, right, Scott? Uh, yeah, I'm hoping to finish that up by the end of uh, next week. As soon as you get done with that uh, composite of uh, D.B. Cooper suspect you're going to make, right? Yeah, I th- that is partially made. Uh-huh. No, but this is really happening. This video is Let's really happening. Let's just move on. Yes, I, I It's just too painful. No, the D.B. Cooper thing, it got, it was, it was like I was <laughs> no trying to, to explain. do I a Mercator it. projection of Mars or something. Uh, anyway. We're, uh, <laughs> we're both very busy, I understand. No, no it's no necessary. excuse. I just shouldn't have promise something I couldn't that's believe. The, well, All right, that's so the part uh, that I wanted you to understand. Well, about. point so, made. Uh, okay. And I'll remember right. that you're trying to make points. If we're going to start that, I'm going to make a list. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I don't have anything to put on it. All right. Well, let's get into scrying mm-hmm. here, man. I, you know what's funny? I actually had forgotten how this got onto our radar until you mentioned it. Uh, maybe you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, I, I did wonder if you would remember why I had that book and the the little black crystal ball. Well, there's a story to that, and you're involved. So here is why we decided to cover scrying as a topic. Way back when we covered the Black Eyed Kids topic, or BEKs, Scott had a great idea for some publicity posts on social media where he was going to take a shot of his son wearing the usual BEK garb, which is nondescript jeans, dark nondescript hoodie, generic nondescript sneakers, et cetera, et cetera, and then Photoshop and an image layer, right, of glassy black orbs in place of his eyes. Yeah. Yeah, so we searched the internet for black glass balls, and what do you know, black glass scrying orbs came up, which I was taken by surprise. I I did not think of that as, uh, oh, you know, I was thinking like a... uh, Something you put in a fish tank, maybe. Well, they come in various sizes, so we bought one of these smaller ones that are about the size of a racquetball for our purposes. Well, then Scott can tell you what he ended up doing in Photoshop to get the effect. But do we actually use the scrying orb in the end? Well, the thing is, I took pictures of it, and I did try to comp it together, but then we wound up, the pictures we used of my son... He was so far away, it just didn't even matter. It was oh, like one, right. it was yes. overkill <laughs> for an effective <laughs> when all I really right. needed to do was just like uh, draw a little mask and paint his eyes black. So, well, there you go. And and uh, you know me, I don't like anything going to waste, and I also like things to be used for their original intention and purposes. So this, but I was actually kind of surprised that that's a scrying orb. Well, that sounds pretty fascinating. I've I've heard of the term. We were getting into some of the mechanisms, and I thought maybe later on we'll do that as a topic. So I ended up with a black ball in my possession. I usually get uh, more of the creepier things. That we yeah, that's not by accident. I, I, I see. That stuff stays with you. <laughs> well, I'm fine with them because I'm going to start my own paranormal museum, my own okay. traveling, uh, just like Greg and Dana or uh, Zach Bagans. Yeah, nice. Plus, it's fun just to have a room in your house that you can tease people about being a totally forbidden and uh, a portal to uh, another hellish dimension. More hellish than this one? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I'm, I'm just barely making it through this one. So uh, good to have goals. But I also figured that, you know, one day, maybe we'll try this out and we're going to need a book on it. So, you know, need some instructions. It's like anything else in this realm. You just don't want to go off half cocked. You don't want to walk up to the blackjack table and not know how to play. 
you're going to lose a few bucks, I think. A lot of people are doing that with the stock market right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I also figured it was a good opportunity to use a cheesy pun with the episode title, The Scrying Game. Oh. I've been seeing the uh, 1992 Neil Jordan hit motion picture. A lot of people will, yeah, have Get never it. heard of it, especially younger folks. But uh, whatever you I do, don't not. spoil it. That's the original spoiler. The, uh, no, Even it's though it's twist. from 1992. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the movie was iconic in its time. Stephen Ray, yes. And yes. Uh, Jay Davidson, yep. uh, it, that actor's breakout role. So there's a lot going for it. But it has absolutely nothing to do with scrying, <laughs> for, just for the record. It's not paranormal. Not that I can least. remember. Yeah. No, but uh, Jay Davidson was later in a, a movie where uh, he played a an Egyptian deity of sorts. Remember oh, that that's one? right. That's right. There you go. Everything's weirdly connected. Uh, not so much. So I thought, all right, well, first get a decent book on it that's well-rated that will give you a little bit of history on it and uh, some how-to pointers and really how it works, because that fascinates me. What are the mechanisms of this? And uh, if it does seem to deliver some information from beyond yourself, where does it come from? How does that process work? And we're not certainly going to Sylvia Brown this, but I was tinkering with the idea of trying it myself, but uh, I'm not sure if I have the courage. Well, okay, on another note about tonight's topic before we begin, just as with our coverage of the Ouija board, we want to make it perfectly clear that we are not recommending or endorsing the practice of scrying, if you believe in such things. Some caution that, like with Ouija, you could be opening yourself up to, let's say, unwanted access from outside forces. Or, for those of the Christian faith, Books of the Old Testament, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, prohibit seeking out mediums, necromancers, fortune tellers, and practicing divination or inquiring of communication with the dead. Are you going to read us some passages here? Uh, I thought you might. Oh, okay. All right, so here's the first passage. This is Leviticus 19.31. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Then we have Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 13. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Well, I, for one, was curious about what a modern Christian denomination thinks about practices that could be considered to fall within divination or psychic mediumship and astrology, fortune-telling, and using a Ouija board. And with the Ouija, stories are so scary, I think it scares a lot of people off anyway. Certainly, that was going to be our intent, not to scare you away from using one, but to illustrate, of course, and be spooky on Halloween. And we did find some stories that give me pause. We did, and I agree with that. You know, what's interesting, though, one of the authors we're going to be referring to tonight of one of the books that was a primary source for this evening's show, he doesn't think there's anything to the Ouija board thing. So, okay. <laughs> well, it just so happens, and I've mentioned him on the show before, that uh, I do have someone in my family who has some expertise in theology and ministry and Christianity. In fact, uh, I'm going to refer to him as Dr. Tim. He's a member of my extended family. He has a doctorate in ministry from St. Andrews University in Scotland and several other degrees that Forrest and I clearly don't have. He's also an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church. And, I, you know, the first question I asked him was about these two passages that we just read. The first thing he said out of the gate was this, you know, in this case, context is vital. 
Those texts come from the part of the Bible referred to as the Torah, or law. That is part of the scripture where Israel is establishing its identity, practices, culture, etc. Much of that work is an act of self-differentiation. That means that often what is forbidden is forbidden not because it's inherently evil, as much as it is related to a practice of another culture and that culture's religious convictions. So, by discouraging their folks from participating in those practices, the community is saying that we are not those people. We're a different kind of people. We are Yahweh's people. He goes on to say the rejection is less a rejection of those habits because those habits are bad, as much as those habits link them to a people and faith that is not theirs. It is that linking that is bad as much as the practice itself. That's what we got. We have, we have a few more uh, emails from Dr. Tim we'll get to later in the show here. But yes, and thank you, Dr. Tim, for your time. Yes, thank you very much. Certainly didn't have to uh, waste his precious time with our bonehead questions, but I was always been fascinated and, and interested by what does theology say about a lot of the topics we cover, uh, ghost hunting, mediumship, psychic sometimes, psychic ability, remote viewing, all that kind of ties in here. And, and certainly I thought it was an opportune time to ask an expert. Well, tonight's episode is uh, maybe going to talk about another expert here, and it's also what I call one of our book report episodes, where most of the research and content, the bones and the framework of the episode, will mainly come from one source. And that source is a book I picked up not long after we got the Black Orb, so I could learn how to work it if I ever got the courage to, and it's called, appropriately enough, Scrying for Beginners, Use Your Conscious Mind to See Beyond the Senses by Donald Tyson. So a lot of his book is going to be referred to in the latter part of the episode for tonight, but we're going to first set up and drawing from his information, but also a lot that the ARC dug up and uh, a bunch of different sources, uh, articles, Wikipedia, of course. So we want to set this book up. So again, that's Scrying for Beginners. We'll have a link to that. And Scott, you want to tell us a little bit about the book and the publishing company? Yes, this is from Llewellyn Publications, which is uh, currently in Woodbury, Minnesota. And this book was originally copyrighted in 1997. The 10th printing was in 2010. If we make reference to any page numbers tonight, that will be hmm. in reference to the Kindle edition, just so everybody knows. And Llewellyn Publishing, a lot of our listeners, if they're diehard fans of the show or they listen to a lot of shows like ours, they may already have a book on their shelves from this company. Mm -hmm. It's actually 120 years old. Started in wow. 1901. They have hundreds of authors, all kinds of fascinating stuff, including Donald Tyson's book, Scrying for Beginners. Uh, and as Forrest said, we'll have a link to that if you want to try to find that yourself. They have books on Wicca, tarot, and they have Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, which I only just now remembered I have a copy of around here. So I've had it for years. Next year. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> seen it in a Tobin while. Spirit Guide, yeah. of course. <laughs> but the company uh, was started in 1901 by a man named Llewellyn George, and uh, eventually it changed hands and moved. But uh, it's your, we're going to have a link to their website because there's all kinds of interesting books up there, especially for you folks who are interested in new age stuff. Yeah. which I don't have a whole lot of books on that material. And, you know, I have, yeah. I know everyone thinks I believe everything ever since the Sally house, but like I'm, <laughs> I, I'm still yeah. a little incredulous about certain aspects of it, but uh, I love to read about it. I love to learn about it and see what people think about it. And this is the place to get those kinds of books. Well, you're a little too young as well, not having grown up in the seventies and, and being a swinging hipster adult then, because as we talked about a little in the Frederick Valentich series, it's like stuff on UFOs and metaphysical stuff and Khalil Gibran and, and uh, all these authors and having the ruby out of uh, Omar Khayyam in your shelves. People were into having a collection more of 
these esoteric subjects. And they were discussion pieces when people came over for fondue and wine and <laughs> and just to, to hang out in a very the 70s fashion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I'm saying. You don't have to be fully into it, but a lot of people would have these titles on their shelves and, and interest in that kind of comes and goes. But I think we're probably on an upswing now. Well, a little bit about Donald Tyson, the author, whose book starts off on the first page with the claim, anyone can scry if they try. Well, that's very encouraging. Well, thank yes, you. I, will, I will keep reading here. <laughs> well, this guy is really interesting. Uh, Tyson is described as a hereditary seer and ceremonial magician hailing from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. His bio goes on to say that he was drawn early in life to science by an intense fascination with astronomy, building a telescope by hand when he was eight. I could destroy a telescope when I was eight. My dad did that with my grandfather. <laughs> they built one by hand. Uh, wow, that's very they, cool. Yeah, yeah. my kid. thing is I would take things apart to see how they worked and then, then that was And then the walk away <laughs> from the pile of junk. But uh, Mr. Tyson's education began at university uh, seeking a science degree, but he became disillusioned with the aridity and futility of a mechanistic view of the universe and shifted his major to English. After graduation with honors, he pursued a writing career. Now he devotes his time to the attainment of a complete gnosis of the art of magic and theory and practice. His purpose is to formulate an accessible system of personal training composed of East and West, past and present, that will help the individual discover the reason for one's existence and a way to fulfill it. Hmm. That's great. I, you know, I wish I'd seen this bio before I read the bio. I've read his whole book cover to cover. Right. But this gives a little insight into him because one of the things that I thought was interesting about this book and his position on scrying in general was that his viewpoint was very well formulated. Yeah. He knew what he believed, he knew what he didn't believe, and he he made pronouncements willingly about X, Y, and Z. And I found that refreshing. Uh, in a lot of cases, when you read a book about a topic like this, there's a lot of, well, it could be this way. We don't really know. That. He wasn't doing any of yeah. that. He was like, this is how this works. <laughs> this is how that works. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, but uh, I enjoyed that that aspect of his writing style. Yeah, and I think that's why that book is rated pretty highly on Amazon, is that uh, he's cut and dried about it, and he's clearly confident in the definitions of the techniques of the knowledge. Yes. It's not just gazing into the crystal ball. No, folks, that's just one out of infinite variations of types of scrying, which is I didn't know about. So that was fascinating to me. But for those of you who've never heard the word scrying, what is scrying? Well, the Merriam-Webster dictionary online simply defines it as a noun, as crystal gazing or divination. Crystal gazing, the word, uh, its first known use in 1883, they define as the art or practice of concentrating on a glass or crystal globe with the aim of inducing a psychic state in which divination can be performed. The attempt to predict future events or make difficult judgments, especially without adequate data. That second part of that definition is interesting, too. That's kind of what it is. You, you don't have enough data. You're asking this outside force to provide that data. Or is it an inside force? We're going to take a look at that question later. Divination is defined as, number one, the art or practice that seeks to foresee or foretell future events or discover hidden knowledge, usually by the interpretation of omens or by the aid of supernatural powers. And two, definition here, unusual insight, intuitive perception. And then a little bit about the history and etymology for the word scry as a noun uh, comes from Middle English, S-C-R-Y-E, scry, uh, short for escry or a scryan, which means to call out or 
from the Middle French, escrier, the old French, basically crier to cry. So you're calling for information to come to you to help you make a decision or to fulfill your knowledge, but it's not coming from your conscious mind, let's say. It's coming from somewhere, either deep within you or from an outside force or maybe a combination of the two. Yes, and there's a distinction I want to make here that uh, Donald Tyson makes in his book that is very fascinating. I wanted to share it with our listeners. This is a direct quote. This is from uh, pages four and five in the Kindle edition of Scrying for Beginners. Quote, divination is not scrying. In divination, we interpret the occult meaning of physical objects or events observed by our physical senses according to a set of established rules. It is not necessary during divination to receive data from our unconscious mind, although this sometimes happens. When it does, the divination becomes a scrying. Palm reading and tarot reading are examples of divination. Ah. But when your subconscious mind gets involved, now you're scrying, which is like, this is and one of the things that I would ask him if we'd had a chance to talk to him, the author. Yeah. I wonder, and this is, I'm going to come back to this quite a few times, Mm -hmm. uh, but I wonder how remote viewing would be perceived because that is about a direct relationship between your subconscious mind and the information. So I wonder if he would perceive, it's not on his list, but I wonder if he would perceive it as scrying. It's a fascinating question. And and, uh, and yeah, when you think about it, if you've ever gone to a tarot card reading, the person is using knowledge of the cards and what they mean as laid out on the table. So when you do a draw, in whatever configuration, I think the Celtic cross is, uh, I don't know much about tarot, but I think that's one uh, configuration and uh, there's a bunch of different patterns. You interpret what the cards mean from the draw by a set of definitions, descriptions to determine that. You might get impressions or the person drawing the cards or doing the reading might get an impression that is from a, let's say an extrasensory perception realm, but generally they're going by what the cards tell them. Same thing with the I Ching, throwing the bones, the runes, you know, all these other things, there's rules that tell you what they mean. So that's the differentiation here. Yeah, and this is another question that I wanted to ask Dr. Tim about, and I misled him a little bit accidentally, (laughs) because when I asked him this question, I hadn't fully grasped what Tyson was saying about the differences between divination and, and scrying. So to be fair there, Here's a passage from Tyson where he explains it, and it was the first time, it was an aha moment for me. This is from uh, page 181 of the Kindle edition of his book. The reason the pendulum method qualifies as scrying and not divination is because the thread on which the ring hung suspended was supported upon a wand of vervain in the hand of a man. This allowed the deep mind of the man dressed in linen to communicate information through the basin by means of subliminal muscular contractions that moved the ring in non-random ways. Now, I left out the setup here, but in this mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. case, it's a ring being used as a pendulum inside like a, um, a bowl, I believe. And it might have been a glass, but it's yeah. surrounded by a solid. And that will make more sense here as I go on. Had the ring been suspended from the ceiling and allowed to blow in the breeze from a window, it would have been a divination. Since the method involved the communication of data from the unconscious mind to the conscious awareness through the avenues of the senses, it was a scrying, as the term is used in this book. So when I asked Dr. Tim about this, uh, he said regarding divination specifically, and as a general caveat, I always say there's no such thing as what 
Christians believe, because I asked him, what do you think, you know, all Christians believe, yeah, right. uh, which was way too broad. Uh, sorry about that, Dr. Tim. Determining what Christians believe is like determining what the color of the sky is. Reflexively, we say blue, but really it depends. Is it a clear, sunny day? Is it cloudy? Is it nighttime, sunset, sunrise? In other words, the answer is manifold. What is reasonable to say when asked what Christians believe is to say what a particular church officially teaches or what a particular theologian has written on a given topic, etc. Tim goes on to say, that said, typically it might be claimed that there are a few approaches to the idea of divination that might be widespread within most traditions of Christianity. For some, it is not an issue at all. Uh, we will not spend time thinking about those folks because that's probably not of particular interest for you, I assume. For those of whom divination might be theologically troubling, there generally are two reasons that they might shy away from it or outright reject it. First, often there is a concern that such practices might resonate with pre-Christian habits and, therefore, represent a lingering or residual commitment to some previous faith commitments that are being discouraged within the Christian community. As an example, the Apostle Paul runs into this concern in the New Testament. There are Christians who want to eat meat sacrificed to idols. On the surface, he sees no problem with that because he sees the idol as being ineffective, so there is no harm in eating perfectly good meat. However, he discourages congregations from doing so if eating meat confuses outsiders into thinking that Christians are endorsing or continuing old practices of idol worship and sacrifice. If meat sacrifices, or in this case, divination, point to some previous commitment and folks cannot recognize the break between what was done in the past or by others and what is being done now or in the Christian community, it is best to just not do that practice to avoid confusion. So in the case of idle meat, find it elsewhere if it is causing trouble. That is what I would call a soft rejection of a practice, be that practice idle meat eating or divination. Hmm. Dr. Tim adds, on the other hand, a hard rejection might be one that is more theological as opposed to pragmatic. This hard rejection typically originates with the idea that the faithful are encouraged to worship the creator and not the created. So if a crystal is seen as having certain supernatural powers, then there is the risk that someone begins to assume that the created thing is infused with or divine itself. As such, the created thing retains the possibility of becoming the thing worshipped, displacing the creator with created. Such a replacement is considered the very essence of original sin, as evidenced in the second creation story in Genesis. There, Adam and Eve assume the position of God as the adjudicators of good and evil. That is the sin, i.e., the replacing of God at the center of things with themselves. As such, some will resist practices of divination if the practice presumes to take the place of the divine or the object offering the divination is assumed to be divine. Wow. Well, a lot of logic and philosophy there. It's like the Ouija board. It's like now you're putting the Ouija board itself as the mystical sacred thing if it's giving you information rather than what's controlling it. Right. So, but then how does this get redefined? And this is not something I made clear in my question to Dr. Tim, but how does this get redefined when the process you're undertaking changes from divination to scrying? Right. Now you're inserting, in theory, the subconscious mind is getting involved. And so now we've moved away from divination, but is divination still a subset of this or is it a whole new ball game at this point? Right. Right. 
Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Joe. Now back to the show. Well, no theologian myself, obviously, but for the few articles I did read about it in preparation for the questions that we put to Dr. Tim, the general, very general gist I got was that you don't know where these messages are coming from. Most likely it's not a good place, so don't do it. Right. Just say no. You shouldn't be doing any kind of asking of mediums or fortune telling or consulting, uh, inquiring of the deceased, I think it said. You shouldn't be doing any of that because then you're not trusting in God to determine your future. You're trying to leap over that to outguess him. And it's even a, a worse sin if you try and manipulate that through various means and practices, if you know what I'm saying. But it's a lesser thing to try and figure out, uh, it, at least I believe the Catholic view is that if you go to a fortune teller and you didn't really realize it was bad, it's not that bad of a sin. If you then try to, like, say, make a pact with the devil, yes, that's pretty bad. Well, well, I mean, yeah, and that's a pretty extreme example. But I sure. guess the question <laughs> I still have, and I, I would ask Dr. Tim if he was here right now, is is um, is if in the scriptures and in other places where you're seeing them encouraging you not to do this, how much of the reason is because they want to reinforce faith in God and how much right. is because they want to... You still reinforce that by reinforce it by just shunning any other prior religious commitments, yeah. as he said. You know, so like yeah. there, there's a question as to whether is this really about being concerned about this activity, or is it mostly just about taking away the other activities so that the remaining right. uh, philosophy is the only one that you're involved with? That's just a question. Yeah. But you know, in the book on scrying, Tyson, the author visits all kinds of religions and mm -hmm. and talks about how scrying can be approached by pagans and Wiccans and Christians and all across the board. And, and that's what's another yeah. thing that's fascinating about the book. He's not trying to enforce uh, one particular approach to it, because right. for him, it's a process that you can undertake that's very, very personal. And uh, if it's personal to you, then it's about what you believe. It's not going to not work or work differently because mm -hmm. of your origin point. That's, it seems to be the, the philosophy that he's putting forward in his book. Yeah, it's a very even, inclusive approach, you could say. But the reason I, I make this point here is, is one, to your earlier point or question, I would say, it's probably a combination of both. It's kind of like with Christmas traditions, the holly wreath, the tree inside, those are pagan traditions that have been carried over and allowed to happen because, and again, this is a very broad and very general. Uh, well, we've talked about this in our Christmas shows, yeah, a couple of our Christmas shows. Yeah. Right. I'm sure people are going to have uh, points of clarification, let's say, that when you are trying to introduce Christianity to pagan peoples who've been doing their thing for thousands of years and say, hey, no, this is the new way to do it. This is the truth and the way. And it's maybe not as fun as what you're doing. It's a bit of marketing. You want to sell this to them. It's like, no, no, this is the truth, but it's, it can be fun too. And guess what? I, you can still have your wreaths. How's that? So we'll let you have a few of your old traditions with Christmas. You can bring a Christmas tree inside. You can put up the boughs of holly, which may be holdovers from Druid practices and Celtic practices. And you still have to follow the major rules, but we'll bend it a little on the old rules and the old practices and the old ways because those die hard. So to sell this whole new thing called Christianity, we're going to allow that. And, and that's how things get stuck in tradition. So there is a blending, as we've seen with Samhain, which has a scrying tradition of its own, 
and Halloween and things that are allowed by the church. Now, the other point I want to make is that this has come up quite a bit in that we talked about this at the beginning of last year with the Edgar Casey series. And Edgar Casey, being a fundamentalist Christian, I think Baptist, but uh, his church would not believe in a lot of the stuff that he was doing and saying. And he didn't himself. I made that point pretty clear in the series. He had a lot of trouble with stuff he said while under his state, his subconscious state, you could say. Not so much a trance, but just in any altered mental state during the readings. And he came out of them and he's like, boy, I'm having trouble with this because I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in past lives. A lot of this stuff is really metaphysical and it's blowing my mind. And I don't think I should be telling people. So he had a real struggle with this until a friend who was a metaphysical scholar, you could say, or somebody who had really studied it, went through the scriptures and showed him that, no, they can be compatible. These new ideas that you are talking about with metaphysics and Bible teachings, they can be compatible. And he convinced him and he was able to go on. And the other place where it recently showed up was our coverage of the Ouija board and its use. And we had somebody, I believe, who was a minister email us saying like, well, actually, it's not allowed by the church, and it's forbidden. And our point was, at least with the history and the historians saying, well, in the mid-19th century, people who were religious found a way to accept it and blend it, and it wasn't such a big deal. And that's proven by the country being a very pious country, a lot more now as far as church-going folks. You could go Saturday night and have a Ouija seance party. You can do that Saturday night in your parlor and then Sunday morning go to church and it's all fine. But we did have that pastor point. I was like, well, it's not technically allowed. So that's one of the questions I want to look into. But as we've seen, social mores change and what's acceptable is what Dr. Tim said. You have to look at them in context. And so the context of the Old Testament is different than the context we have now and how we view things. But still, there are churches who don't like ghost hunting because their view, from what I've read in these few articles, is that you're not sure who you're getting to talk to. And since the Bible does not specifically say you can talk to uh, past Uncle Fred or Aunt Betty, that you are most likely talking to something that's not good like a demon. So anyway. I don't attend church regularly. Not something I'm proud of. I'm just saying when I do go, I go to a Methodist church. But I am aligned based on the research and those things we've covered over the years. I'm aligned with the idea that you don't know who you're talking to at this point. Well, yeah. I think I, more so than I ever was when we started the show. Just, you know. Well, here's my position is that it's always possible. There's so much more to me anyway that's possible now and that you can't be sure. So you have to entertain all these possibilities. Whereas the hardcore debunkers saying, this is all bunkum. This is all baloney, you are going to get nothing but your own subconscious and uh, subconscious motor movements moving the planchette, or what you want to see when you're scrying. What's interesting about tonight's topic and Donald Tyson's approach is that it might be coming from deep inside you, but it's kind of a mystical place deep within inside yourself and a place where you can tap into your subconscious and unconscious. And we're going to talk about the distinction later those places can deliver unknown knowledge. And where does it come from? Well, let's get back to taking a look at a very general definition of scrying. And of course, for that, and, and maybe a debunky type tone, we looked at Wikipedia as we often do. And the Wikipedia entry on scrying defines scrying as, quote, the practice of looking into a suitable medium 
And that's not a person. That's talking about a, a type of object. Yes. Going on. It's the practice of looking into a suitable medium in the hope of detecting significant messages or visions. The objective might be personal guidance, prophecy, revelation, or inspiration. But down the ages, scrying in various forms has also been a prominent means of divination or fortune telling. It remains popular in occult circles and discussed in many media, both modern and centuries old. And, and something before I forget, which uh, people are going to point out to us, I'm sure, is that uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the evil witch is looking into a, essentially what's a scrying mirror. That's right. And it's I mean, giving a lot of people her hadn't thought about that scrying in Disney. <laughs> no, and there's always crying uh, in Disney, but yes, crying too. There's crying, and well, it's uh, any yeah, the fairy tales, man, those are dark stuff. But they're a reflection of cultural goings on and and legends and folklore, and so they're they're valuable uh, certainly for that uh, reason. But when your kids are seeing it, they don't realize that uh, yes, the witch is all powerful and evil, but she needs this portal to tell her that she is the fairest of them all until she isn't, and then there's hell to pay. Well, older terms or other terms for the practice of scrying are known as seeing or peeping. Well, the Wikipedia entry on scrying goes on to explain that there is no definitive distinction between scrying and what it calls other aids to clairvoyance, such as augury, which is defined as divination from auspices, like how the ancient Etruscans would interpret the flights of birds as auspices, and then by a set of established guidelines developed by the haruspex, or priest, would then determine what the auspices or omens meant and how it would affect present and future events. Now, an auspice is defined in the dictionary as a prophetic sign, especially a favorable one. So uh, here's a little side note here, which I thought is interesting, and we'll define and, and paint a picture of how these are different, and that's part of our discussion. Just so the listener out there can know when people are saying, like, it's divine providence, or it's been divined, or it's divination, and it's been seen as second sight and all these different terms and what they mean and, and the differences. So now we're actually going to talk about academic history here. It's one of my favorite courses here from the, the Great Courses Plus, and that was called The Mysterious Etruscans by uh, one of my favorite professors on there, Dr. Stephen L. Tuck. When he talks about what the Etruscans did, because again, this also falls into the timeline of history of who was practicing what then, and certainly the Etruscans really informed the Roman practices, which really shaped history. And for the Romans, divination was huge. One of the factoids that uh, seven of their last 10 kings for Rome were determined by divination. So they thought it was important and they took their traditions from the Etruscans, but they viewed it a little bit differently. Maybe the Etruscans were a little more spiritual in their thinking. So how does the process of divination work? Well, generally, and for the Etruscans, there are five major types. One was defined by Tarkon, who is the eponymous founder of Tarquinia. Remember, remember yeah. <laughs> back in the day? I love that story too, because he was out plowing the field. I'm not making this up. A Charlie Brown old man baby pops out of the ground. Yes, and, I remember. What uh, episode was that? We talked about that. I was like, what? Well, Where you know what you it is? This story? I'm not making this stuff up. This is history, man. And, and uh, it's uh, Etruscan history. No, it, it came up because... Well, we were doing a, a spot for the Great Courses Plus, as we like to do, and just one of our favorite sponsors. One of our sponsors tonight, by the way. And these are not paid announcements. We're, no. we're legitimately, <laughs> it's part of our education. This baby pops out of the ground while he's plowing. It's a baby, but it has the features of an old man. And that's a common kind of weird thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> that it's like Charlie Brown. You look at Charlie Brown, and he's a kid, but he looks like an old man, too. <laughs> so... Uh, a little paunchy, uh, yeah. So this baby named Tages, uh, he starts 
telling Tarkon all the rules and, and uh, rituals for divination. And then once he disappears, Tarkon says, everybody gather around from the village. Uh, this magical baby just told us how to interpret signs from the gods. So we're going to start doing that. Well, his specialty, Tarkon, was examining entrails. If you've studied Roman history, you've seen that they do that too. They, they study the entrails of birds and, and all kinds of animals, livestock, to check the omens, if, if everything's okay, if something's kind of weird, if there's a deformation, it could be bad news. And then there are other means of soothsaying that could be divined from, such as the flight of birds. That would be the second one. Number three, portents, such as lightning. Lightning was a big thing. And to point out, I think the lecture does, is that uh, the difference between the, the Roman thought and the Etruscan thought is the Etruscans thought, well, the Romans thought when clouds came together, that actually released lighting when they banged together, and it was more of a natural process. The Etruscans seem to believe that clouds came together and produced lightning because of the will of the gods. You know what I'm saying? That they were brought together, not that lightning was a result of clouds just colliding. So it shows you a little bit uh, different uh, view in how they define divining. I'm not sure if this is technically divining, but I used to think if I was, when I was, you know, used to have to drive to work every day when I lived in LA, if mm -hmm. I caught a bunch of green lights, I knew it was going to be a good day. <laughs> That's what I told myself. Am I divining That's here? an awesome. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you're, like you're it's taking... not it's not a natural thing. But if I got all the red lights, I would think, oh, today's not going to be good. Something's going to go It's a bad wrong. omen. Don't yeah. you, we say that all the time. And that is part of what we're talking about tonight. That could be taken as a sign. Now, you didn't envision or have a, uh, you didn't look into a bowl of water or oil and no. see a bunch of green lights in there. Now, this would be freaky. Imagine you looked into a crystal orb or you looked into a bowl, or you, you know what, there's so much, we're going to talk about all these different types of scrying. You can look up into the night sky, the night sky, and look at the stars and scry from that. You can scry from the insides of your eyeballs. Well, eyelids, right? Yes, you're not yeah. that, you have to, your eyes, eyelids have to be closed, but the darkness there, and you and I do that a little bit. You said you did I, that. Yeah, I've uh, mentioned it on the show before, and that one is actually not in Tyson's book, but then you brought it up to right. me when we were preparing to record tonight. I was thrilled because, well, of course, I was also a little bummed because <laughs> I wanted to surprise you and tell you that I can uh, scry with the insides of my eyelids. But it's not really scrying because I'm right. not doing a good job of interpreting what I'm seeing. But I, and it's not always there, but there are times when I can close my eyes and when I look into the blackness that I see, and it has to be dark, you know, it's like oftentimes when I'm in bed at night or something, right. and I will see faces and objects and things on the insides of my eyelids. Dude, moving, you're scrying. They're, they're animating into the foreground and receding and changing and morphing almost in a, I've, I've never wow. done LSD, but I think in an LSD kind of way, maybe. And it's strange. And then I will try to control what I'm seeing or try to say, uh, come back, or how can I um, better ascertain what this is supposed to be and manipulate what's happening. But that doesn't work usually. But the things come and go and move. And it's interesting because, you know, I have floaters in my eyes. Yeah, uh, they call I do them too. Right. little specks that float around. And sometimes those will trick the you. The bit of lining. Yeah, yeah. And they've tricked me on uh, on ghost investigations. I would think I saw something mm. and then I realized, no, it's the floater that I usually forget is there. But right. in this case, these are more like, and they only exist as dark black and then a light, very much uh, slightly lighter black thing that is forming uh, almost a liquid. It's very much like what he talks about in the book when you look into oil or you look into these reflections and you look for this. So anyway, I don't know what it is, yeah. you know, but I've seen it. I'm not, I don't know how to interpret it though. Okay. Well, you should know because you've read uh, the rest of the book, but I think you were scrying. 
even though that's not a technique that he may have pointed out, that sounds like the beginning stages of it, where yeah. you are welcoming and trying to manipulate and maybe the only step you're missing is that it's a you need a directed question. You need to ask stuff. Right? Yeah. You could be seeing stuff. Now, Donald Tyson's mother had a strange uh, phenomenon that would happen to her that was not asked for. So, yeah. well, getting back to what the Etruscans thought and, and how they practiced divination, number three, portents such as lightning, but those are natural things you're observing. Like you're, what I was going to say, what was be freaky is if you looked into a bowl or pool of water trying to scry and you saw green dots of light all through the bowl, right? And then you did that in the morning, you drive to work and it's all green lights. Now that I think would be a scryed vision. Yeah. Yeah. Event. It's like, because you look at the bowl, like, well, what does this mean? I just see green dots of light. Well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Are they orbs? I don't know. On the way to work, weirdly enough, you hit every green light. Unheard of. So that would be a good omen or a good auspice. Well, getting back to the Etruscans, yeah, number four, oracles. So that is perhaps a person who could uh, tell you the future or had special powers of doing so. Uh, number five is dreams for divination interpretation purposes. The Etruscans specialized in the first three. So that would be entrail examining, the flights of birds, and portents like lightning. Well, how do they do this with the flights of birds in determining that? Because it's an important distinction between that and scrying. Well, the examination of birds and portents, uh, both of which share a common process with the Etruscans. So whenever they would go into a session, you could say the specialized priest called an augur needed to determine the future or the will of the gods. What he did is he had to be outdoors in a walled but open precinct so that he could see the sky. Now, the priest was called an augur, and the precinct was called an auguraculum. One or more such augurs would stand in this precinct and examine the signs, the flights of birds or portents, and they would call this taking the auspices. So you've heard of auspices, right? Under good auspices, this and that. Yeah, but I hadn't really That's thought much from. about that word until tonight, till this part of well, the outline that you're talking about. So I love learning stuff on the fly. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. That's I, I hope to give you a few nuggets every time we sit down and get together. <laughs> That's where that comes from. And basically uh, how it's different is that they divided the sky, the Etruscans, into 16 different quadrants, kind of like a pie, right? a different god was in charge of each of the 16 quadrants of the sky. Now, it depends on where the birds flew from, you know, where they entered and flew to, east to west, northwest to southeast. It all depended on the interpretation. So there's a set of rules that they have to refer to. It's not like people saw a vision of birds or they looked into a bowl or a glass uh, ball and they saw birds flying and that means something else. They actually just observed nature. And they determined the auspices from that. So I had friends in Pennsylvania that did this with the dogs and they would mark areas in the backyard and then release mm -hmm. their dogs and their neighbor's dogs. And there was bedding and there were rules and it was all about where the poop wound up. <laughs> See, that's <laughs> well, it was a grid. It was the same setup right. here and that's nature, right? <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. You're letting animals determine what it means. There's another old ancient fable, and I don't know if it's uh, maybe tied to the Gordian knot, but uh, they were looking for a king, and they didn't know who to pick. So suddenly the stranger comes up, and he's, I think he's pushing a cart, or he's on a wagon, and as they, they greet this stranger on the edge of town, an eagle lands on his shoulder. Big time auspice, good omen, like, dude, you're king, that's it. Wow. So like I said, that would be an omen. You walk outside, and uh, let's say a hawk lands on your shoulder. That doesn't happen every day. What does that mean? 
to these uh, ancient peoples, well, it's a sign uh, something from something divine, something the gods want you to know. It means something. So getting back to Wikipedia's description of scrying, the entry would say that generally speaking, uh, quote, scrying depends on fancied, meaning unreal or imaginary, impressions of visions in the medium of choice, end quote. So like a scrying mirror or a crystal ball, a black mirror coated with asphaltum or water, oil, smoke, fire, etc. All of these are methods we'll touch on later, but these are possible mediums for scrying. The definition goes on to say that ideally in this respect, scrying would be different from augury, which relies on interpretations of objectively observable objects or events, such as the flight of birds mentioned above or your green lights. It's different from divination, which depends on standardized processes or processes or rituals. It's different from oniromancy, which depends on the interpretation of dreams, and different from the physiological effects of psychoactive drugs, and different from clairvoyance, which is considered extrasensory perception, because the notion of it does not depend on sensory stimuli that is objective, perhaps like interpreting how the wind is behaving or affecting you in wind scrying. You can use the wind to scry, so... Anything around you can be used, but you see how these things are lining up here as far as being different and that there are definitions and uh, depending on what's going on and how the information comes to you determines what you're actually doing. So again, we're still going with the wiki uh, article here. Further explanation states that as a discipline, scrying is not a single or clearly defined practice and there's no consistency or uniformity in the procedures. Throughout the ages, the techniques for scrying have been elaborated upon, uh, tweaked, and reinvented by different practitioners and cultures. The people that have engaged in scrying and, and the authors and the researchers and the historians that have written about it have come up with their own terms for the different processes and techniques that have suited them at the time. So much so that there are no authoritative definitions for the different variations. Now, Donald Tyson would argue that a lot of the authors who've written about scrying for various articles and journals well, they haven't practiced the discipline themselves and are just repeating descriptions they found elsewhere, which we've seen a lot, of course, in writing on paranormal stuff and its events. Yes. And to be clear, he does practice it and is quite accomplished at it and has practiced it right. his whole life. And it's the ability to do it effectively actually runs in his family genetically. Yeah. And his point would be, well, you've done a good thing if you want to know more about this by buying this book, because I've actually done it. And I can tell you about it. I've studied the history, the practices, the methodologies, and I can point you in the right direction if this is something that interests you. So, but on a personal side thought, I did wonder if some of these techniques and scrying mediums were happened upon by accident as well as experienced scryers and seers improvising with different scrying mediums and, and tweaking their techniques. Imagine like some cave person or shaman at Gobekli Tepe, or an Olmec priest or Chaldean hierophant, perhaps someone with a predisposition to psychic ability and interest gazed into a bowl or pool of water, and then they saw or sensed something that was extrasensory. And then especially if what they saw came true, imagine that. And then they wondered, if this experience could be better repeated with better results and using something else to stare into under different conditions. Like they then tried to literally look into a flat piece of obsidian or, or polished bronze to think about their questions while staring at glowing embers in the fire. Maybe they did that. Well, I also think that different objects and techniques work better for some people than others, as we'll hear Tyson explain in a bit. But getting back to some of the different descriptions of scrying that have stuck, here are some of the other terms. 
The commonly used terms for the different types of scrying and the objects used, at least for the layperson, have come from Latin and Greek word origins. Some examples for looking into a crystal ball or crystal gazing are called crystallomancy or spheromancy, catoptromancy. Boy, I had to look at that yeah, <laughs> a couple of times here. Catoptromancy. Yes, I believe I, I nailed it. But to show you how interchangeable some terms are, catoptromancy really shouldn't be used to describe crystal gazing exactly because you look into the orb, but rather it should be used for scrying with the aid of objects that are reflective like mirrors. These terms are all interchangeable. There's nobody really studying this and laying down a law about it, but there are slight differences. So yes, catoptromancy should be just used for reflective services. So that's a lot of uh, what we're going to talk about tonight too. Other examples for terms used to describe the different scrying mediums and methods would be like uh, for staring into glowing coals, which we like to do, don't you? Oh, yeah. I love that. I, yeah. I do it all the time. I stare at the it's fire. It's very relaxing. I mean, who yeah. has anybody who's been camping has done this? <laughs> it's and the you first zone TV. Out and, it's, and it's very much, I mean, I've done it with sitting at the beach and staring at waves. I've done it like, I get what they're talking about here right? to an extent, but I guess you can refine what you're doing and what you're seeking when you're in this mode yeah. that you can get to because of that. And that was another thing I took away from Tyson's book. It's like, mm -hmm. he's got so many different systems, but they're all just seem like ways to help you get into a, the right frame of mind. That's it. Is that uh, you get into a calm, relaxed, meditative state. You want to blank out all the other thoughts in your mind, because if you're being uh, crowded with thoughts and where do we see that before? That's uh, to use the Ouija board. They recommend clearing your mind. That's the first step. Meditation, mindfulness, that all talks about clearing your mind, getting rid of the, the junk and the spinning motor of your brain running and running about uh, nothing and your worries and all that. That's the first step to having some sort of extrasensory perception moment. And that's what he's talking about here. When I look at the coals of a fire and, and how they kind of uh, undulate and it looks like a, yeah. um, a cuttlefish. Have you seen the videos yep. of that? It just yep. kind of undulates and it's, it's hypnotizing. And that's the idea with the fish is that it distracts them and, and kind of mesmerizes uh, possible predators. Yeah. And it zones them out. That's the yeah. idea here. We're all zoning out with these coals. Here's the thing. We're not trying to look beyond the veil. You and I, when we're camping, at least I'm not. No, I'm not. There's a name for that, though, when you're trying to scry with coals or fire, and that's anthrochromancy. You know the term anthracite? Oh, of course. I think they're related. I didn't look it up. It just yeah, okay. sounds the same. <laughs> anthrochromancy. <laughs> oh, so Sometimes you do that. You ask a question, I think you're going to drop some knowledge, and then you're just like, no. yeah, isn't that neat? It's a neat word. <laughs> I metaphorically pull the football away from you, which you like to use uh, on me all the time. It's, yes, and, indeed. And uh, I enjoy it. Like Lucy. <laughs> well, looking into smoke to scry has been termed as Turifumi. Turifumi. I'm going to go with Turifumi because there's a lot of fumes. Turifumi. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, Turifumi. there's always a root in there. You're not far off, I think. So that's smoke scrying. Well, guess what? You can look into water to scry, and that's called hydromancy. It's got the mancy part of it. Yeah, you just put mancy on the end of the Latin <laughs> version of... You'll get close. Yeah, They're neologians. Well, here's the summation of all this. Wiki is saying is that there's no authority throughout history that has made any of these terms standard or the practices official. Like, there's no world scrying organization to set the boundaries and rules. So that's why maybe Donald Tyson's book is as good as any resource, uh, as it's well-researched, it's comprehensive, and it comes from decades of personal practice 
an experience. So why not? You know, there's a little quote here that I thought about from his book. It's just a couple sentences, but it's interesting to me. And, and this particular quote is referring to one particular method. I believe he's talking about water in this case, although it could be oil, liquid in a bowl that you would gaze into to scry. And this is the, the Yoda quote. This is the philosophy on this here. He says, <laughs> what you seek is not in the bowl. The bowl merely serves as a window upon the visions. You must mentally extend your psychic third eye beyond the bowl. That's from page 109 of his mm. book. But uh, oh. I love that quote. It was, you know, I, I heard Yoda's voice when he said it, but it's like, <laughs> what you seek, it's right there. Yeah. What you seek is not in the bowl. Or uh, Chevy Chase from Caddyshack. Be the ball, Danny. Be the ball. Yes. No, 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 no. Or he's done that. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense from some of the other metaphysical teachings I've heard of is that, yeah, don't concentrate uh, on the thing in front of you. You're just opening up a pathway to higher forms of knowledge, higher planes of understanding. That's what you're trying to do. Mentally extend your psychic third eye beyond the bowl. And just strangely, coincidentally, I picked up a book on opening your third eye and finding it from my dad's collection from the 70s when he was one of those guys that had interesting books on his bookshelf when people came over. Yeah. So maybe we'll talk about that one day as a subject. But it's fascinating. Yes, people were much more into that. They're still into that now. But of course, that's uh, seen as really new agey stuff. Well, to finish up what the wiki entry says on it, because I think it's a pretty good overview, and I think that's why we're sticking to it, at least for this part here, in that the terms are very broad in general. But Donald Tyson may have something to say about the methodologies and exact definitions. And you think like, well, who cares? And I'm sure some people have already said that <laughs> listening to this. But the idea is that these definitions and finer points open up philosophical thoughts about a lot of the stuff that we talk about. The slight definitions all lead back to what is the nature of our reality? Where does knowledge come from? I'm not talking about the stuff you learn in school. Where does all knowledge come from? Where does wisdom come from? Stuff like that. So I think it's important and it's kind of fascinating. But uh, I'm going to read this next passage here from the wiki entry so that you can, of course, surmise the tone of the crowdsourced article a contributor's take uh, with scrying. And it's not as debunky as it is with a lot of the other stuff, but it's very kind of even toned. Uh, but it also brings up an interesting point that we'll discuss later. So here it is. Scrying has been practiced in many cultures in the belief that it can reveal the past, present, or future. Some practitioners assert that visions that come when one stares into the media are from the subconscious or imagination, while others say that they come from gods, spirits, devils, or the psychic mind, depending on the culture and practice. There is neither any systematic body of empirical support for any such views in general, however, nor for their respective rival merits. Individual preferences in such matters are arbitrary at best. So two things I want to point out here, this is me speaking, is that one, it raises the question we'll address later. Where is this information coming from? Is it the self way down deep in the subconscious or unconscious? Or is it coming from an external and independent supernatural or metaphysical source? Or is it a combination of both? One compelling the other, much the same way a sports car turbo works. Like <laughs> David E. Davis explaining it's like a pinwheel that's uh, back to back. And as the wind comes through, it compresses the air that gets the wheel spinning, uh, the turbo uh, fans spinning faster. It's, it all works together. 
Yes. The fan is connected to another fan that compresses oxygen going into the engine and the extra air gives the car a boost in power. But the power that's coming in comes from the exhaust fumes that are exiting the car as they pass right. through the turbo on their way out of the vehicle. Yeah. It's very clever. Indeed. I, I love getting things working in conjunction. Well, perhaps that's what's going on with the information that comes from within you and from without. Now, the second point is that, yes, of course, like with all matters concerning psi, that's PSI, matters of uh, psychic ability, there isn't much record for empirical documentation of where this info is coming from or, or how it gets to the scryer. An empirical meaning, quote, depending upon experience or observation alone without using scientific method or theory. That's from the dictionary, but uh, that's what they mean by empirical, unless we are talking about remote viewing, which Russell Targ and Harold Putoff have spent years at the Stanford Research Institute applying scientific method to its study. So yes, there's no empirical support for how well one method works over the other when it comes to different types of scrying. I would say with remote viewing, that's trying to get one methodology that's the simplest and most easy to document and repeatable methods uh, and results down to a science, literally, in that it can be performed the same way each time and with controlled remote viewing, at least, it's a reporting method. So you're trying to formalize what the person is seeing and the impressions you're getting. And that's how it's different, I think, uh, but related interestingly enough. So getting to what Donald Tyson might say, scrying's effectiveness comes with lots of practice and is largely determined by what method and medium works best for the practitioner. So it's a very personal thing. It's not uh, one thing that works for all. But conversely, remote viewing, well, same thing with scrying, according to Donald, is that anybody can be taught it. But with remote viewing, because of the methodology, this one method should work for most people, and you can practice it like scrying and get better at it. Hi, I'm Jay Rich, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Well, speaking of Tyson, how would Donald Tyson define scrying? Is it going to match up with what we just said? Scott, why don't you tell us what he says in the book, actually? Well, this is from uh, page three of his book. He writes, scrying is the deliberate act, a psychological technique, of perceiving events that lie beyond the range of the physical senses by using the agents of the unconscious mind. I think that's uh, what Donald Tyson would call sensory metaphors, too. Yes, that's right. As we mentioned earlier in the show, scrying literally means to see. And he, yeah. he also adds it, scryers are separated from the things scryed by distance, by time, or by levels of consciousness. Usually mm -hmm. visual images are scryed, but it is possible to scry sounds, scents, sensations, and flavors. Any impression you can pick up with the senses of your body can also be received at a distance by your mind alone through scrying. Right, right. By the way, that's something that's different. I, I, I will draw, I continue to draw a lot of comparisons between mm -hmm. this and remote viewing. I don't think in remote viewing you ever have any kind of tactile sensory feedback. It's more observational, isn't it? You can. Different things can come in. Now, again, not to get too deep in the weeds on the rules or the, the reporting methodology, but you can get impressions that are, that are right on, but not really what you want. And those are sometimes called stray cats. Like, yeah. wow, I just got an impression like it's hard to breathe. And maybe that's part, I just remember somebody was actually remote viewing, this is a military person, who said it was really cold, I'm having trouble breathing. 
the sky is a, a really weird uh, light blue color or whatever it was, and his target was Mars. Right. He felt the lack of oxygen, you know, not that he was doing the Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Rachel Takotin in uh, Total Recall, where yeah. they're on the surface. <laughs> but he had some sensation of it. And so uh, with remote viewing, I, I think some things can come in, but you make a note of that and then you move on. Because right. what you want to do is you want to come back to that and say, well, was that accurate? Yeah. Is there anything like that? Now, here's something, I, just a little side thing that's not on our notes. And, and by the way, I'm the one who put in there in your notes uh, in, the, in the, uh, the definition that it's a psychological technique because I read that later and I thought, oh, that'd be good oh, well, then uh, I read to, the quote. to add. That is most of his other quote. I just want right. to make sure that uh, we were letting the listener know that he considers it a psychological technique. It's not so much the uh, the ghouls and goblins, uh, like at a Disney Halloween record coming in and whispering things in your ear. Certainly you can have outside things happen to you that are of that nature, but really he considers it a psychological process of self-discovery in a way. But here's an interesting thing that I he said, you were talking about you can get any other sensations and I remember in the book, he says like, well, of course, visual responses and information are the most useful. You can do the most with those, but sometimes you can scry a smell or a that's right. A taste can come in. And, and I was thinking like, how would that be connected to a target or a question you had? Uh, you and I finally saw The, uh, the Outsider. Remember that? The yes. Stephen King yeah, series. Yeah. Excellent. I thought it was really good. Really creepy and scary, but fascinating in some sense. And the one guy says, uh, I, I, I just got a bad feeling. And the last time this happened, I get this really taste of copper in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, ooh, that's good writing. It's very specific. We all like, you know, when you're a kid, if you put a penny in your mouth, you know what that tastes like or the taste of copper. And, and so I was thinking like, okay, what if you were uh, trying to use scrying to find a lost key to a safe or, you know, the safe deposit box or, you know, small safe you had in your house and it's a small brass key. And you tried to scry it and you got, oh, I got this taste of copper in my mouth. Well, that doesn't fit, but because the, the key is brass. So I'm not tasting the key, maybe. I don't know what this means, but I just get the sense of a, this taste of copper and the smell of copper in my mouth. And then you go to realize like, oh, you know what? I hid that key in a jar of pennies. Mm-hmm. So you're not tasting the key, but you're tasting something very close to it. And that is a signal, but it's not exactly what you wanted. You had to remember like, oh, yes, that's right. I was hiding the key. I put it in a big mason jar full of pennies. That's what I was picking up on. Oh, that's interesting. And I saw a demonstration with uh, remote viewing. And this might have been on 60 Minutes a long time ago, but they did a test with them. And they said, uh, can you guess what is in the box? And so the idea is that you, you try and be in the box. <laughs> so like with scrying. Right. But he said, well, something is red in there. I don't know if it's the object, but it's a small object. It's a small box. And that was one of the strong sensations. And so they opened it up and it was a, a little plastic saxophone, like a little toy. But the inside of the box was red velvet. So it's like, that's a good guess. But he was sort of in there, except they didn't hit the target completely, but he got pretty close. Well, and here's another interesting thing, and we're going to touch on this in more depth in a little bit, but uh, he also describes dowsing as a type of scrying, which I was surprised about. And this is, again, quoting from page four of his book, because the movements of the dowsing rod are messages sent from the deep mind through the nerves and muscles of the body to the consciousness. He goes on to say, the same is true of the Ouija board, the pendulum, automatic writing, and automatic speaking. Hmm. So there's this thing that's happening, which we keep touching on, where something starts out as divination or divine, mm-hmm. 
if it's just you're making observations, like you said, about birds flying or the leaves blowing in the wind or the trash bag in the movie American Beauty or whatever, those that <laughs> stuff is divination if you're trying to read from it or throwing tea leaves or, or yeah. things like that. But once your subconscious mind gets involved in the results, that's scrying. In mm. fact, he said also on that same page, in divination, we interpret the occult meaning of physical objects or events observed by our physical senses according to a set of established rules. It is not necessary during divination to receive data from our unconscious mind, although this sometimes happens. When it does, divination then becomes scrying. A palm reading and tarot reading are examples of divination. Right. So right. it's almost like you have this process, and then once the subconscious mind interferes with it, he's saying it changes the classification of what it is. Okay, that's exactly what we were trying to get at here is what does he think it is, and, and what are his delineations? What are his definitions? What are his boundaries for what's happening here? And so sometimes they overlap. Like he says, you could be doing a divination ritual, like with a pendulum, but if another sensation comes in, that's outside of it because it's like with, we were saying earlier with palm reading. Well, the, the lines mean different things. You're not really picking up a psychic sense from the lines. It's like, well, if you got this, if you got the money M, I remember that, I think it's in your left palm that you read. And if the creases form the M, they call that the money crease and uh, you're going to be rich or whatever it is. There's a set of rules that you read. Same thing with tea leaves. How I heard that's done. You put the tea cup upside down, you twist it in a quarter direction. I'm, I'm totally screwing this up. But the <laughs> idea is that I've heard this also from uh, Middle Eastern people, like uh, with a cup of Turkish coffee, turn it over. If you get a pattern that looks like a, a snake or a worm, you're going to meet a treacherous woman. I don't right. know. Right. <laughs> I don't let Middle Eastern gentlemen tell me that. Or if it's a, a leaf, that means something else. So you're reading the impressions you get in the coffee grounds in the glass, or you're reading the tarot cards in a certain way, or you're doing that, but there's a certain set of rules that you're doing. However, other feelings can come in. And at that point, now it's something else. Well, this seems like this might be a good time to get more serious about the history of scrying. Yeah, let's start off about uh, Donald Tyson's personal experience in history and his introduction to scrying. Well, he says his grandfather was a small man, but a Charles Atlas bodybuilder type. He was a circus strongman and acrobat from Yorkshire, England, who emigrated to Nova Scotia to work loading coal carts. And man, I wish I could have met this guy. He sounds <laughs> yeah. really interesting, really hard worker, lovable guy, just a, a small package of dynamite. This guy could load more coal and outwork any of the other guys. But he was also a scryer, and he seemed to have some innate psychic ability. He would read playing cards. When we talked about that, some people use tarot cards, but back then they were scarce, mm -hmm. uh, Donald Tyson explains. So I've heard of present day mediums who use regular playing cards and they can read those. He could read tea leaves. He could read palms. And he would do this for people seeking personal advice. And he was locally famous for it. So people around the neighborhoods, they would know he was really good at it. But granddad, Donald Tyson's granddad, wouldn't talk about what he saw in his crystal ball. That's interesting in that I don't know if he thought it would uh, muddy the process or what he saw was too weird would freak people out. But what's funny is that uh, Tyson's mother, 
found his process funny. So this is granddad's method, apparently, is that he had a crystal ball that he uh, paid like over two weeks salary for, really expensive back then. Oh, it's just like that guy in the Flintstones. This one's nice. <laughs> two weeks pay. <laughs> That's a diamond. Okay, this is this is such a glass ball that I think he got out of. Some uh, yeah, catalog, I think that was the standard back in the fifties. Yeah, well, it, so it was really expensive. It meant a lot to him. But how he would use it is that he had a box about the size of a shoebox, covered in black velvet, and he had the ball in there. Then he would take a black or dark velvet cloak and put it over his head. And it was so dark that uh, it was unlikely, as the mom said, that he could see anything at all. Like, what, what was he looking at? Right. He can't even see the glass ball or see through it, which is usually how people scry with something that's translucent. They're seeing patterns inside the glass itself, inside the medium. So what's interesting to me about this is that maybe Tyson would say it doesn't matter what you're actually seeing. That's right. Or looking at. There's not a lot of details of specific scrying events in this book. This is more of a how-to book, but he does talk about this one time that his grandfather used scrying to predict the death of a client's sister who lived overseas. And when I say client, it was likely a friend of his grandfather because apparently they went to Tyson's grandfather's house straight from the coal mine after work. And his uh, grandfather did this scrying session for him. So the client then uh, returns home the day of the session. And there was a letter waiting for him when he got home that said his sister had died in England mm. that same day. So prior to that, the client had been with Tyson's grandfather all day long in the mine. There was no way for him to ascertain that information because he hadn't been home yet to get that out of the mail. But Tyson's grandfather figured it out through scrying. Of course, my thing about this is, is this gets into a whole another stretch <laughs> of trying to figure this all out, which I'm not necessarily mm. trying to do because whenever you do that, it gets mad at you and plays tricks on you. But the <laughs> thing is, it, did he know through the scrying that the sister died or did he pick up on the fact that the letter had arrived? Like, what mm. did he scry? It's interesting mm -hmm. that he didn't talk about what he what he saw. Yeah. In CRV training or controlled remote viewing or remote viewing, one of the things you have to learn is to identify the actual target in training and not sometimes the picture of the target. Because there can be confusion there. So it's like, what mm. are you seeing? Are you seeing an evil lair in the Alps? It, yes, I'm going 007 here. Or <laughs> did you key in on a picture of the evil lair when what they really wanted you to identify as the target was the structure itself? Now, mm -hmm. if you're trying to identify the location of the secret layer, then there's this thing where your tasker, and this is again in remote viewing, might be operating off the picture of the thing versus the identity of what it is. So then the yeah. question becomes here, you know, if you believe any of this at all, <laughs> the mm. question becomes here, what did he pick up on? Did he pick up on the actual death of his friend's sister? Or did he pick up on the fact that this ominous letter came? Did right. the letter create some kind of echo that he keyed in on? You know, I, I don't yeah. know. That's the thing I wonder about the the mechanisms of how all this works, if you believe it works at all. Well, that's a huge philosophical question about reality. How real is the symbol of something standing in for something real? And, and we just talked about this, and I can't remember if this was Siren Call, uh, but it was about sigils, which we're going to touch on a little bit later. The power of a representational thing standing in for the thing itself. Yeah. What's the connection there? Uh, and that's the same thing with a sigil. It's like, it's not a picture of a, of instructions on how to summon an angel or a demon or whatever, but apparently there is power in the laying out of the symbology and the letters that are on it and how you do it and, and uh, the ritual. If you're into that stuff, and if not, it's just uh, like a cool looking uh, blacklight poster possibly for someone. But this is something interesting that um, Donald Tyson's mother reported is that is Donald would say she had the second sight and she would have these visual impressions like looking through a telescope backward. 
that's a great description of how she would see this, like a far off image. And this would only happen right before she went to sleep. But she did not welcome this experience. This frightened her. She yeah. didn't want to see these things. Yeah. But that tells me also this runs in the family somewhat. Yeah. This ability to, uh, for second sight. That's a little bit of Donald Tyson's personal history with scrying and how he got into it. But let's do a rundown, a very brief timeline, I hope, of scrying throughout history. And certainly this is not comprehensive. It's just a few places where it's popped up. And uh, we'll just highlight a few times where it's been mentioned in history in a very sketchy timeline. So, But as I wondered aloud earlier, it, it seems like, you know, how far do you back up? Because it seems likely to me that some form of primitive or proto-scrying has been around since the first humans had some kind of extrasensory experience. And then they wondered about it. And then they tried to duplicate it because it pretty much blows you away. It's something that Lynn Buchanan says, when you bilocate, it's it's really mind-blowing and, and wonderful, but it, it happens very rarely, even with a, a master remote viewer. So if you believe that ESP is real, uh, that can happen, or probably even if you don't. And what I mean is the first people uh, having some kind of weird extrasensory experience, cave people wondering with no idea how things work, just having some kind of weird sight or vision. I mean, I don't know what was going through caveman's mind, mm -hmm. but for them, <laughs> it's just another dimension of their existence. It's not something to be like, oh, that's not real. These are, they don't have right. all those constructs of yeah. the definitions of reality that modern society has. So you do wonder, like at that point, if you're living in a cave and you barely yeah. understand why you're alive anyway, a vision's not really any different from bumping your head on the roof of the cave. It's all the same. Yeah. <laughs> they, they approach it differently. And as like Plato's reality was different than ours. Yeah. How they thought about the real world it's all context. And so you got to keep that in mind. But what I'm saying is that these earliest practitioners must have had some kind of extraordinary experience because it's always happened to people. Yeah. Not just like it, it just, well, we're starting in the year uh, 2000 BC and then that's when it's going to start and then shut off like a faucet. It's must have always had to have happened. So it just seems unlikely that they wouldn't have tried to regulate it as a repeatable technique and eventually teaching others about this. Well, now we get back to the timeline here. Some of these uh, timeline points and uh, the history notes come from what ARC members Quaid, Tess, Katie, and Andrew have dug up from articles and journals and uh, wiki entries. And one article in particular gives a good brief rundown, and it's called The Forgotten Act of Scrying by Fernando Gallegos. Fernando S. Gallegos. Some of these instances of scrying popping up in recorded history, may they may overlap or they may be a little out of order, but you'll get the idea. The practice is an ancient method for people to try and gain knowledge beyond the five observable senses. Well, some of the earliest known scrying practices can, of course, be traced back to ancient Egypt, Greece, and Persia, as well as the other corners of the Old World, like with Hindu and Mesoamerican traditions. Those familiar with the Old Testament may know that scrying is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, chapter 44. In the Torah's narrative of Joseph, uh, who was a son of Jacob, uh, who was also a vizier of Egypt, meaning a high-ranking official, here he has summoned his brothers who don't know yet his identity. And he's doing this to test whether his brothers have reformed. But Joseph secretly plants a silver cup or chalice into the bag of Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin. Joseph then searches Benjamin's bag in front of them, and after claiming it was stolen, demands that Benjamin becomes his slave as punishment. Another brother, though, on behalf of the other brothers, Judah, then begged Joseph not to enslave Benjamin, but enslave him instead, since enslaving Benjamin would break their father Jacob's heart. 
So this causes Joseph to take back his accusation and demand and reveal his identity to his brothers. Now, one interpretation has it that during this exchange, Joseph's steward claims that the silver cup was used for drinking and divination. Now, an interesting twist appears in the Midrashic book of Jasher, which claims that before revealing his identity, Joseph asked Benjamin to use astrology and an astrolabe-like tool to perform something like scrying or divination. And according to this Midrashic commentary, Benjamin uses divination or scrying to tell him that the man on the throne was Joseph, at which point Joseph reveals his identity to Benjamin, but not the other brothers, so he could still test them. So here we have an instance in the Bible, and, and what's interesting to note is that, and this may be addressed in one of the other Midrash or Torah commentaries, is that scrying and divination were accepted practices for Egyptians, but forbidden by Hebrew law. Hmm. But clearly in, in this, at least in the studies of these, uh, the ancient scholars of, of the Hebrew Bible, they say that Joseph was uh, clearly using divination practices. And, and there's a tool there, an astrolabe-like tool, which is interesting. Uh, what is an astrolabe? It's like the Antikytheria. Oh, yes. Okay, I see what it is. Well, it's an ancient yeah. astronomical device that equates to a handheld model of the universe. All right, so that's one recorded story of divination or scrying from ancient Egypt. And the ancient Egyptians also routinely used scrying in their rituals and initiations. And these could be in the form of water, as we just said, or oil scrying, dream scrying, or mirror scrying. And one legend states that the goddess Hathor created a shield that could reflect back all things in their true light. Uh, this is going to sound like another legend as well. From this shield, she allegedly fashioned the first magic mirror to see. Mm. That's interesting. That's a, a, a great mythological uh, origin there. Mirror, mirror uh, on the wall. This... <laughs> exactly. Now, this is from the Fernando Gallegos article, quote, the ancient Egyptians in particular would use a vessel filled with oil and would call among a young boy to look into the oil while invoking the name of one of their gods seven times. They were able to foresee the future. This Egyptian method of scrying is quite similar to those found with historical Hebrew writings. Interesting there. Furthermore, certain waters or oils were substituted to increase the intensity of a vision within the spread of this technique. So that's another point that he's making here is that uh, they would experiment with stuff, switch things around. Some things work better than others. Yeah, and it's something I want to point out here. Uh, it's not in the outline, but since you brought up that particular mm -hmm. passage from the Gallegos article, is mm -hmm. that Tyson addresses some of these older techniques, particularly the Egyptian ones, uh, uh. and he makes it very clear that he does not encourage in modern times in learning scrying mm -hmm. the practice of involving kids in the process. Right, it's not right. correct. It's not proper. But he does, from a historical standpoint, he explains mm -hmm. what they used to do and that had had these beliefs that the children were more capable, which is an ongoing theme in the paranormal world with like, you know, when yes. you're a kid, you can, you're still... You can still They're connect to, to all this paranormal stuff, but yeah. that was part of the process all those years ago. And it's yes. interesting that he does detail it, but he uh, does not encourage modern methods of, you know, bringing some young kid into as a go. But all his scrying methods are about doing it yourself yeah. as an adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just no, want to make that clear because he, he, and rightfully so, he's like, this is a little awkward, but I'm not going to leave it out of the book, you know, so mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell mm -hmm. you how that went down. So I, I wanted to address yeah. that in case anybody else emailed no, us about it or something it's, like that. You're right. So uh, of course, ancient Egypt, it was a different time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, certain things were uh, gotten away with uh, much easier back then. But what's interesting to note here, remember, as we're going to get to it later, the invocation of the name 
of one of their gods a certain number of times. It's going to sound familiar with something else here we're going to get to. I think in um, remote viewing too is that they don't undertake uh, somebody too young because, well, it's it's litigious society here. It's, uh, you know, hey, uh, my kid can't sleep for three weeks because you something he saw or right. she saw and it, it messed them up. So yeah, it's best left to the adults, but you're right. The younger folks don't have as much of a uh, supernatural callus about them. Yes. Well, getting back to the ancient Greeks, they scried using crystal and reflective surfaces a lot, uh, black glass, polished quartz, water, beryl, and other materials that are transparent or ones that caught the light. And one of the earliest recorded uses of crystals as tools for divination comes also from the Celtic Druids of Gaul, Britain, and Ireland during the Iron Age. And in the Druidic practices, beryl or beryllium aluminum silicate tends to appear translucent to transparent. And that's an important property here for scrying. And the Scottish Highlanders called them stones of power. These crystals and spheres have translucency and symmetry in their regularity of the patterns in the stones. So that may have helped with the second sight by adding structure to the images seen within them. That's that's just my supposition here. Somehow that worked to further the sights that they were seeing, the information they were getting, is the clarity, the patterns inside, and uh, they certainly thought that they were worth something. Uh, So you get the idea here. These ancestors were first using any materials that had a reflective quality or a transparent quality. So you could gaze back at yourself or gaze beyond yourself into the void. And some cultures would have a preference, using obsidian or other shiny rocks or polished bronze discs for reflections. Some used crystals or translucent objects in order to peer into them where images would form. And what might work better for some cultures or individuals is if the medium had a mystical or spiritual property, like some priests or seers would drip blood onto a mirror to aid in scrying. Now, in the Gaelic Festival of Samhain, which is uh, also spelled uh, Samhain, which is my alternate identity, so uh, nobody can steal that. Yes, Samhain. <laughs> I, I have a separate bank accounts and uh, home loans taken out in this person's name. That's good that you announced it on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't steal that now. I'm working on getting him his own uh, social security number, but it's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but it's pronounced Samhain, and that is the Gaelic Festival and the influencer to modern Halloween. But it also has a scrying ritual as outlined in a blog on pathios.com written by Athame and Stang. You know, what's cool is that they, they outline what to do, but we're just going to uh, read the description here. So the following ritual is intended to both honor one's ancestors and ask for their assistance in gaining some insight of what's to come in the coming year. However, be prepared as not all visions will be of good tidings. Remember, though, that the future is not fixed, and this may be an opportunity for you to make some changes in your life. Now, for this ritual, you will need the following supplies. Black mirror, candle, bread and wine, or juice, juice will work too, an incense composed of vervain, wormwood, and frankincense. Incenses, smells, are, are very uh, conducive to this process as well. So, they don't go on to that, but the, the blog barely goes on to uh, tell you what you can expect supernaturally from this practice and how to do it and uh, what you're hoping for. So uh, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad Athame and Stang, uh, Stang had written this out and uh, let us know about one, again, Gaelic or Celtic tradition of scrying that goes hand in hand with Samhain. And speaking of Halloween and scrying, some rituals and ceremonial magic that have activities similar to scrying have mutated into folklore 
and then passed down through pop culture superstition. Around the turn of the century, there was a popular scrying-like superstition where, especially on Halloween, if a young woman gazed into, or, or really, I guess, scried into a mirror in a darkened room, they could possibly see the image of their future husband. But as with all folklore and superstition and, in turn, scrying practices, variations and mutations arise to fit the fashion of the day. One variation of the superstition is that the young lady is to walk up a staircase backward in a dark house while holding a candle and gazing into a hand mirror. And if you don't fall down, as with a more stationary version, the woman could possibly see her husband's future face. Future husband's Future face. husband's face, right. Okay. <laughs> Or maybe the face that he's going to have after being married for 50 years. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. a different face than the one she's seeing now as a young man. But yeah. uh, looks kind of like mine. <laughs> but also with both versions, there was a horrifying risk to the dare. Now, this gets back to the Samhain scrying ritual here in that they do warn you the tidings may not be all good. The visions may not be all good. But it's a lesson that you may need to see or experience to change, uh, make some changes in your life for the better. So with this superstition, though, you could possibly see your future husband's face, but also with both versions, there was a horrifying risk to the dare. In each version, she could see her future fiancé's face, or there was a chance she could see a death's head skull, a witch or a ghost, like in Snow White, hmm. or with the deathly face of the Grim Reaper. And this meant the young woman was to die before she got married. Yikes. So this superstition may be the origin of the Bloody Mary or Candyman dare for adolescents, okay. uh, where someone is supposed to say Bloody Mary three times while staring into a mirror in a darkened room to conjure a horrific apparition, or worse yet, the entity in the room with you. So that's what I meant by uh, the invocation of a god. Uh, you say the name seven times, and then you can see the future. Here you say Bloody Mary three times, and she shows up in your bathroom mirror. Right. This is also at the point at which uh, the tweet thread from David fell apart for you with the rocking chair and the, when he said, <laughs> yeah, something had to happen three times. You have to say, dear David, three dear times. Dear David, three times. And yeah. then he, he gets up and he does. Uh, You're like, okay, uh, I'm done uh, with this. <laughs> he, he does he does a little river dance. Yeah. <laughs> da, 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 yes. And I'm speaking of Celtic stuff. Now that's where it's maybe part of a ritual. And I get that. That is, uh, that is sacred to a lot of people uh, who practice it. But the fact that he, again, people try and latch onto the tropes. And that's how these things get morphed from ancient traditions and rituals and ceremonies down to a running thread on Twitter to, I think, promote a book that he was selling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something. What's funny is that any one of our listeners uh, who've listened to a lot of shows or have done a lot of their reading, certainly there's listeners out there much more knowledgeable about us than uh, about the paranormal, but you read it and uh, or you see something and it's like, that's too much. It's a bit much. But people who aren't very familiar think they have to add more to make it dramatic. So no shade being thrown and Mr. Uh, Dear David. But at that point, I was, you know, people were saying, do you think this is real? I was like, no, nah, I don't think so. Don't strike me that way. <laughs> uh, but it was fun to read while it lasted. Well, but uh, here, though, in this dare, you know, you have to say the name three times. But what it does, it gives you an out. You can say it two times. It doesn't happen. You can say it two and a half times. Bloody meh. And then stop. You got to go through the whole thing, but see what that does, though, is it adds drama to the dare. That's another part of why it sticks. It's fun. You can say it twice. You can, you can walk right up to the tippy-toe edge of the void, but not jump in. Well, what about other parts of the old world? 
Well, in 10th century Persia, and, and tying in with the Egyptian and Hebrew legends, there was a cup of Jamshid, which was said to be used by the mythical kings of Persia to observe the seven layers of the universe. That sounds pretty cool. So they have their own myths there. Well, here's another rich history going to Mesoamerica. According to the Gallegos article, The Forgotten Art of Scrying, there was an Aztec cult dedicated to a god that was representative of scrying named Tezcatlipoca. Tezcatlipoca being a combination of two words, Tezcatl meaning it is a mirror and Ipoca meaning it emits smoke. So this god, Tezcatlipoca, was lord of the smoking mirror. And the priests of this cult would use flat, shiny obsidian mirrors for scrying. And thus the color black was representative of Tezcatlipoca and worn only by priests. Black was also representative of power, and Tezcatlipoca's own power in the mythology came from scrying with his own black obsidian mirror, which he used to gain knowledge of everything and be able to see into the hearts of men. Hmm. Now, from the ethnography by the Franciscan friar Bernardino de Sahagún, who is best known as the compiler of the Historia General de las Cosas de la Nueva España, or in English, a general history of the things of New Spain. Sahagún describes a most prophetic mythical scrying, which goes like this, quote, The seventh sign, or omen, is that water bird hunters caught a brown bird the size of a crane, and they brought it to Montezuma to show him. He was in the room they call Talil Ancalmecac, and it was after midday, and this bird had on its forehead a round mirror in which could be seen the sky and stars, especially the Mastahelos near the Pleiades. Montezuma was afraid when he saw this, and the second time he looked into the mirror that the bird had. There he saw nearby a crowd of people gathered who came mounted on horses. And Montezuma then called his augurs and diviners and asked them, don't you know what this means? That many people are coming. And before the diviners could reply, the bird disappeared, and they said nothing. Well, many people did come all right. The Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés and his men, who waged war to take over the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, during which Montezuma II was killed, along with a great number of his subjects, during the first contact between Europeans and the indigenous civilizations of Mesoamerica. Reportedly, sometime between 1527 and 1530, Cortes had brought some of these obsidian scrying mirrors used by the high priests of the Tezcatlipoca cult back to Europe. And this was around the time of a beginning renewed interest in magical philosophy, which gained popularity during a transitional phase, roughly from the end of the late Middle Ages in 1500 and into the Renaissance and the Age of Discovery. And this was also a period when two of history's most famous scryers were active, John Dee, an Anglo-Welsh mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, teacher, occultist, and alchemist, born in July 13th, 1527, lived to 1609 or 1608, depending on who you ask, and also a French astrologer, apothecary, and physician, and supposed seer of the future. Michel de Nostradam, born either the 14th or 21st of December, 1503, and died uh, the 1st or 2nd of July in 1566, and better known by the Latinized version of his name, Nostradamus. His book of 942 poetic quatrains, collected under the title Les Prophecies, and first published in 1555, which allegedly predicted future events, we all know is still discussed today. 
and we may be discussing it one day for a future topic. What do you think, Scott? Ah, yeah, I'm open to it. Those are the ones that you only got to do like one or two that dense a year because it's hardcore. <laughs> it is. It's a brain yes. breaker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but at least you studied French, so I, I feel a little more secure. In oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, well, we're going to be discussing both of these gentlemen and their scrying activities at the end of the history section here. But before we do, here's a little everything's connected tidbit. One of these Aztec scrying mirrors is in the British Museum in London and was owned by Sir Horace Walpole, the 18th century Gothic writer, architect, and son of the first British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole. The Horace Walpole had attached a label to the mirror which read, The Black Stone into which Dr. D used to call his spirits. So if this tag from Sir Horace Walpole is to be believed, somehow... One of the obsidian scrying mirrors brought back by Cortez ended up in the possession of John Dee and used in his own practices, which popularized the use of a black mirror for scrying as he visited the courts of Europe. And yes, the popular sci-fi futuristic series on Netflix titled Black Mirror is playing off this nickname for a scrying device, uh, since the screen of a smartphone that's off looks like a black mirror. And yes, you, you know, you can use your smartphone to scry. Well, it turns out we're all carrying black mirrors. We're all, <laughs> we've got something we can scry with right in our pockets. Ooh, well, it tells you so much, but like with scrying in some people, you can get addicted to it because you're always looking for that answer and it's never enough. You'll find some answers and you, you got to walk away from that. But uh, there's a lot of people who just can't put their phones down, as we know. Maybe you shouldn't ask any questions in the first place. <laughs> Live with the question here. <laughs> okay, but before we get to Jean and Michel, and Scott's going to tell us more about that, a couple more notable examples of the use of scrying. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Latter-day Saint movement, is said to have used information he received from reflections in what were called the seer stones to help in its formation. So in the 1820s, Smith had at least three separate stones he used in attempts to find buried treasure, where he would place a stone inside his hat, it said in the crown, look down into it and obtain information from the reflections he saw in the stone. And Smith also claimed that spectacles made with seer stones, he called Urim and Thummim, and uh, probably should have asked a uh, person who belongs to the LDS church if that's pronounced correctly, but <laughs> Urim, U-R-I-M, and Thummim, T-H-U-M-M-I-M. And this allowed him to translate the golden plates, which were then the source of the Book of Mormon. And then, from about the 1880s to the turn of the 20th century, a secret society devoted to studying the paranormal and practicing occult and metaphysical rituals called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, or just Golden Dawn. Golden Dawn had seeded many of the concepts on ritual and magic that are employed by Wicca and the Thelema movement, started by Aleister Crowley. And this is just from the passage here in, in Wikipedia. I'm just going to read it here. Uh, Golden Dawn taught their own version of scrying or scrying that could be done individually or as a group. And it emphasized three levels. One, scrying in the spirit vision with an emphasis on inner seeing by focusing on a symbol or mirror. Two, traveling in the spirit vision involves going to the place seen and interacting with what is found there. Three, rising in the plains focuses on a spiritual process involving scrying via the tree of life that has the potential to elevate consciousness to the level of the divine. 
Yeah, I, I just want to point out something real quick here. This is not the same Golden Dawn that's the fringe Nazi group in Germany, just for the record. <laughs> they are unrelated, at least yes. as far as I know. That's not what we're talking about. Right. And when I say as far as I know, they're unrelated. I don't know where that right, group right. got its name from, but that is completely unrelated to what we're talking about here. Indeed, and thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, unfortunate uh, naming kind of things uh, can happen, like uh, the Great White Brotherhood is not a uh, supremacy group. It's no. <laughs> Ascended, ascended metaphysical masters, yes. Okay, can't argue with that. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash A-L. That's mintmobile.com slash A-L. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash A-L. Hi, this is Chris, and when I'm not getting the crap scared out of me by the ghosts living in my own home, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. Well, let's back up a little bit and take a deeper look at probably the most famous scryer of all time, Nostradamus. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how popular he's been lately, but for a good 25 years, there would be specials coming on every two or three years on TV, <laughs> all through the 70s, 80s, yeah. and I think even the 90s, where there would be reenactments and someone would come on and be in a dimly lit room by candlelight and he'd be portrayed as Nostradamus and all his predictions were essentially doomsday predictions, which is not yeah. necessarily what he wrote down. But it put the fear, I, I know, as a Gen Xer, I remember... I remember there were all these predictions that said, you know, World War III was coming, the apocalypse, and all oh, of these things. Dude, I didn't think on. I was going to make it out of college. <laughs> <laughs> come on. In search of Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. That tripped me out watching that. Yeah. The blue turban. The soldier that drank from his skull, because that was the legend, is that if you drank from uh, Nostradamus's skull, you would gain his knowledge. And uh, as legend goes, he he drank wine from it. One of Napoleon's soldiers, I believe, and it instantly caught a bullet right after that. Ooh. Had one good vision, and then bang, that's it. That's well, yeah, and maybe in death, he got all the knowledge he sought. You know, mm, that's you the irony. Yeah. It's like, the well, you can have three <laughs> wishes. All right. Yeah, no, that sounds like the devil's bargain right there. Yeah, indeed. Well, it, let's talk a little bit about Nostradamus, because Tyson does mention him in his book. And it starts out with uh, understanding what he had published. He published an extensive set of predictions about momentous future events titled The Centuries. Uh, this is from page 93 of Tyson's book. And uh, that was dedicated to his son, Caesar. And th this came out in 1555. Now, there's a section here that I thought was particularly interesting about how Nostradamus went about scrying. And I, I just want to read some excerpts from this. This is on uh, pages 94 through 96 in Tyson's book. Nostradamus writes very little concerning his method of scrying. In a letter to King Henry II of France, he confides, I will confess, sire, that I believe myself capable of presage from the natural instinct I inherit of my ancestors, adjusted and regulated by elaborate calculation, and the endeavor to free the soul, mind, and heart from all care, solicitude, and anxiety by resting and tranquilizing the spirit, which finally has all to be completed and perfected in one respect by the brazen tripod. Mm. And so this is fascinating here. I mean, one thing he's, in, in a way, he's talking about mindfulness. He's talking about clearing his mm -hmm. mind, empty your yeah. mind. And this is the step that you first take with all kinds of methods that, that might be similar to scrying. 
but it's about finding, I guess, an, a moment of inner peace or getting Zen-like before you, you get into this. And the, and the tripod comes up a lot too, because uh, that's a very sacred part of the scrying process, at least at this time. And that tracks back to Egypt as well. And there's something about it, uh, it having to be brass, at least in Nostradamus's time. Hmm. I want to go ahead and read uh, the rest of this excerpted section from the same pages. For the human understanding, being intellectually created cannot penetrate occult causes otherwise than by the voice of a genius by means of the thin flame, showing to what direction future causes incline to develop themselves. Well, the genius he refers to, and this is Tyson saying this, is of course his good demon or holy guardian angel. He describes the flame as thin, in quotes, meaning pale or rarefied. In medieval times, the human intellect was thought to be composed of a very subtle, penetrating kind of fire. We can gain a better understanding of the nature of this spiritual flame by the description he gives when telling his son, Caesar, how he burned all his magical books. But dreading what might happen in the future after reading them, I presented them to Vulcan, and as the fire kindled them, the flame, licking the air, shot forth an unaccustomed brightness. Clearer than the light is of natural flame, resembling more the explosion of powder, casting a subtle illumination over the house, as if the whole were wrapped in sudden conflagration. Tyson says, It is obvious here that Nostradamus is not really talking about his burned grimoires at all, but is intent upon conveying to his son the appearance of the spiritual flame that illuminates his vision during scrying. He considered this knowledge too sacred and perhaps too dangerous to set forth in an unambiguous way for anyone to read, so he veiled it within an incident of which the Inquisition could only approve. By the explosion of powder, he means a bright white light similar to that caused by a flash of gunpowder. There were few other artificial sources of dazzling white radiance in the 16th century to which he could refer. So mm. I, I think what's interesting there, too, is what Tyson is pointing out, and it's something to remember, is that the Inquisition was an issue. So in terms of imparting this kind of information, you have got to tread very, very lightly, because if you got more specific about it or implied blasphemous concepts, uh, you were facing death. Yeah. And the last section I want to read about Nostradamus is a section here he has called Two Mysterious Quatrains. And this is again on page 96 of Tyson's book, Scrying for Beginners, in the Kindle edition. There are two quatrains in the first century, and the century is the term that applies to a collection of a hundred of them, that represent almost all we know about the actual scrying method of Nostradamus. Although they are far from clear, I believe I have been able to decipher their meaning. Again, this is Tyson speaking. Since the lost method of Nostradamus is likely to be of interest to all serious scryers, I will give them here. Gathered at the night in study, deep I sat, alone upon the tripod stool of brass. Exiguous flame came out of the solitude, promise of magic that may be believed. The rod in hand set in the midst of the branches, he moistens with water both the fringe and foot. Fear and a voice make me quake in my sleeves. Splendor divine, the god is seated near. Tyson says here, from the first quatrain, we learn that Nostradamus scried at night and in solitude. He sat upon a three-legged stool, or supported his scrying basin upon a tripod, probably both. Tripods, and again, he says basin because, and I'm mm. not sure I made this clear, but Nostradamus used the water method. That's what, yeah. at least that's what Tyson believes, and that's what many folks believe. So he might have had a bowl, a basin, with water in the bowl. And it's not just 
any water. It's collected from special sources. There's a lot of philosophy into that. And he explains all of these things in his book. Tripods were considered sacred by the ancient Greeks and were extensively used in temple divinations. The myths that exist concerning magical tripods that moved may have arisen from oracular tripods employed during scrying. So that's really all he says about the method that he uses. Mm -hmm. But because Tyson has studied scrying so much, he's drawing conclusions there. And honestly, I think that a lot of them make sense, um, a lot of what he's reading into this. Well, uh, again, as Forrest said, Nostradamus probably represents his own multi-parter in the future of Astonishing <laughs> Legends. Um, we should go and look and see if uh, if he predicted. He, he was like, I shall be on a podcast. And, uh, <laughs> or maybe but, not. Or maybe not. But, but here's what uh, I've heard several authors talk about the quatrains. Yes. And what's interesting is that there's really good arguments for them being accurate and for them not to be accurate. It's like everything else. It's you see like what you a, want to see a little bit with the, yeah. Da- yeah, with the data. But it's still fascinating how the guy did it. And, uh, you know, he was, geez, talk about plague during his time. I think his first uh, wife and two daughters passed away from the plague. And yeah. uh, he helped uh, doctors. He was an apothecary, which means I think he sold medicine and, and herbs to doctors and uh, worked with them. So he was rumored to have predicted the JFK assassination, Hitler, yeah. all that stuff, right? And mm-hmm. he, Hitler, I think on the in search of, they mentioned a Hitler with except Hister, it was yes. yes misspelled, but very close. Right. You which, know, and again, jeez, uh, yeah, going back to that, uh, it, there's a there's a river there yeah. uh, called the Hister. Uh, but there's the Twisted Cross. It's all this really good stuff. But yeah. when you're young, like Scott and I, and you see that on In Search Of and Leonard Nimoy's telling you about it, it really makes an impact. It, yeah. it fuels the imagination. Well, we have to talk about one other fascinating scryer and, and and probably the second most famous one. I'm not sure I'm ranking them properly. Maybe they're <laughs> maybe more famous than Nostradamus, depending yeah, on- Yeah, people have heard of uh, Michel, I think a lot more than John D, but certainly yes. those who know their- history, especially with Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. And now with Oak Island, yes, we'll have heard of John D. And we've talked about him too. Oh, yes, we did talk about John D. In fact, those of you who listen to our Voynich Manuscript series may be familiar with John D. from that because it was thought that Mr. D. and Edward Kelly, who he worked with, may have forged the Voynich Manuscript. That's another story. And if you want to hear about it, you can listen to our series on the Voynich Manuscript and our extensive discussion on Mr. D and Edward Kelly. And that series is in part one, uh, which you can also find transcripted, although I don't know if I published a transcript for it yet, but I will soon, I promise. Mm-hmm. So um, we're still checking through some of those ones that were done by robots because they have lots of mistakes. And <laughs> But getting back to uh, John D., the interesting thing was that he was fascinated with all of this, uh, you know, ascertaining this kind of information, but he couldn't do it himself. So he relied on Edward Kelly. And there was some suggestion in the Voynich Manuscript series that Mr. Kelly may have been a bit of a charlatan. So you've got to take all this with a grain of salt, which, of course, Mr. Tyson in his book is not saying anything about anything about his character or the character of Mr. D, just only that they... Uh, were involved in scrying. But the other thing that was fascinating was that Mr. Kelly apparently was communicating directly with the angels and came up with a whole language, the language of the angels that he was then interpreting and relaying information to John D this way. And John D kept having him do these sessions, just endless sessions to the point where he was wearing him out and he was completely exhausted so that he could continue to collect this information from the other side, as it were. 
Uh, I want to uh, read this quote here from Tyson's book. This is on pages 126 and 127 in the Kindle edition uh, regarding John Dee. In 1581, he became actively interested in spirit communication when for many nights he was troubled by strange dreams and unexplained knocking noises. In his private diary, Dee writes, March 8th, it was the eighth day being Wednesday, Hora Noctis 1011, the strange noise in my chamber of knocking and the voice ten times repeated, somewhat like the shriek of an owl, but more longly drawn and more softly, as if it were in my chamber. Ooh. These disturbances did not go away. In another entry, he writes, August 3rd, all the night, very strange knocking and rapping in my chamber. August 4th, and this night likewise. It would be wrong to suppose that these nightly portents were the sole cause of Dee's scrying experiments, Mm-hmm. but they must have focused his attention powerfully upon the subject. He began to try to see visions within a small globe of natural rock crystal. On May 25th, 1581, and it's so interesting, you know, because we've mm-hmm. looked at so much over the years, I look at these dates and I'm like, this is not that long ago, really. This isn't that yeah, long ago yeah, in, yeah, in terms of yeah. human history. Right. On May 25th, 1581, he records, quote, I had sight in Cristallo offered me and I saw. So despite this limited success, he soon admitted to himself that he lacked the gifts of a seer, and he began to seek out a man with second sight who might take employment with him as a scryer. So Mm. that leads us to his interactions with Edward Kelly. There's a lot to talk about there, but one of the fascinating things is that once he hooked up with Kelly and Kelly began to communicate on behalf of the angels, they developed this sigil, this device, which is like a symbol. And you you may have heard us refer to these. A lot of you already know what they are, obviously. But for the people that don't, these are symbols that the symbols themselves carry power. And it's a combination of symbols. And one of the things you might heard us refer to are demonic sigils, especially in relation to whatever might have been left on the floor of the basement in the Sally house uh, that there was a remnant of. Yeah. Oftentimes there's a pentagram involved and there's other various symbols. So there's this one called the Sigillum Ameth. And uh, I'm not sure I'm saying that right. It's A-E-M-E-T-H. We did look it up. There's very few pronunciations for it. But this was developed based on instructions given to Edward Kelly from the language of the angels, which he then translated and gave to John Dee. And this is something that they personally used. They constructed and used it. And here's a quote on it from page 129 of Tyson's book. The Sigillan Ameth, the crystal in its frame, rested upon a complex seal called the Sigillan Ameth, Ameth, A-M-T-H, the Hebrew word for truth, that was engraved into the surface of a disk of beeswax. The angel Uriel gave explicit instructions about the exact size and shape of this sigil. It is, Uriel says, to be made of perfect wax, nine inches in diameter and somewhat more than 27 inches in circumference and in thickness between an inch and a quarter and an inch and a half. The actual Sigillan Ameth used by Dee and Kelly has miraculously survived through the centuries down to the present day and resides in the safekeeping of the British Museum along with Dee's other magical tools. That's the end quote. Like that obsidian mirror. Right, like the mirror. And here's the thing that's fascinating. When you look at this thing, you can see you're actually not supposed to cast your eyes upon it unless you have a certain amount of reverence, but there is a picture of it on Wikipedia. So God help (laughs) us all. I went, I had to look at it. And this is a complex combination of symbols that you, you get to thinking about, you know, the, if you believe any of this at all and Edward Kelly, 
you know, was he a con man? Was he a charlatan? Did those two fake the Voynich manuscript? And by the way, that's only one far-flung theory about the Voynich manuscript. There's not a, we're not implying that they did. You can listen to our series on the manuscript for more on that. But the idea that some people thought that Kelly was capable of that, when you bring all that into perspective, and then you take a look at this thing and the complexity of it, there is something about it when you do look at it. And again, we'll have a link to the Wikipedia page for it and probably an image of it in our image gallery. I don't know. I felt something when I looked at it, which is weird. And I'm not saying that, oh, I'm a believer, hmm. you know, I, hmm. I, that I'm, I'm buying into all this and everything. I'm just saying, <laughs> looking at that symbol, there is something, I don't know, entrancing about it. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about this is John Dee apparently had a familiar that Edward Kelly would see when uh, when he would gaze into this crystal that was John Dee's crystal. I listened to this from page 147 of Tyson's book. John Dee and Edward Kelly had such a familiar spirit resident within Dee's crystal. It came to Kelly in the form of a little girl with golden hair and a green dress lined with scarlet. She called herself Medimi. The spirit behaved as you might expect a precocious and intelligent 10-year-old girl to act. She treated Kelly with a kind of witty good humor as she might behave toward an elder brother, and Dee with the same deep respect she might show toward her father. Kelly never trusted her, but Dee regarded Medimi almost as his own spiritual child. In a sense, she was his child, since it was his earnest prayers and thoughts that nourished her. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing here is all of that actually reminds me of the siren call of the hungry ghost, because... Mm. Here and again, if you hadn't heard that series, you should go back and listen to it. It's who are you talking to here? Who are you dealing with? And then, you know, again, it plays into this complexity of whether or not Edward Kelly was the real deal. But when you look at the information he produced, it would take a pretty spectacular mind to have conned all the stuff that came out of him, which is, you know, and those people exist. I'm sure they do. Sure. Or people yeah. that maybe lie to themselves about where they're getting information from. but. I think that it's really interesting that Tyson points out that Kelly didn't trust this little girl. For all intents and purposes, especially for non-believers, this imaginary little girl that was a common character to both of them that provided information, John Dee saw her as his own daughter in a way, and Edward Kelly saw her as some kind of spirit that shouldn't be trusted, which hmm. in a way aligns with what Joe Fisher said in The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts after his experience. Hmm. And we're talking about you know 500 years apart here. So it's interesting. The other thing that's really fascinating here is the actual furniture that everything was supposed to be built on. And again, this came to Edward Kelly from the Angels, from the Angel Uriel, I guess. And uh, John Dee wrote this down, but they had actually talismanic discs. This is from page 132 of Tyson's book, beneath the legs of the scrying table. Right. And he writes that this is interesting in view of the Egyptian practice of elevating the scryer upon four bricks. It was considered a profanation of the divine to allow it to make contact with the bare earth. He goes on to add on page 134, Dee's method shows just how elaborate the furniture of a scryer could become. Its form was dictated to Dee by the angels themselves. This is the accepted manner for learning the details of any magical instrument or technique. Once the magician has succeeded in making contact with his or her holy guardian angel, the angel will describe in very precise terms exactly what is needed for success in future rituals. This is one of the reasons so many magical grimoires lack details. After contact is made with the higher genius, books of instruction become superfluous. I think yes. that's pretty fascinating. But I do want to come back to something that you mentioned earlier in the show, the idea of sensory metaphors, which Tyson talks about in his book. There's one particular section that you and I both keyed in on where he says that scrying is like how a computer takes raw data in the form 
of ones and zeros of binary. When you scry, you ask your unconscious mind for information that is beyond your normal senses. The unconscious mind can assess this info, but it must be put into a form our conscious minds can understand. And it does that by shaping the raw info into sensory metaphors. Mm -hmm. And this is a point that Tyson makes throughout the book here is that this information is coming from the unconscious mind. And this is going to come up here in my conclusions in a bit is where is the data coming from? But the other thing that's interesting about what he's saying, too, is, is something I remember reading a long time ago about computers when they one of the biggest challenges they had when personal computers came into the marketplace decades ago was printing because there was this huge problem in developing what they called WYSIWYG, which is an acronym <laughs> that stands for what you yeah. see is what you get. Uh-huh. And the difference, the WYSIWYG experience of getting the words and letters off the screen and onto paper was a huge conundrum and required yeah. an intense amount of development in terms of computer development. You don't even think about it now. You hit print, this thing comes out over here. There is a whole lot going on between what you're seeing on the screen. That's a representation from your graphical user interface, you know, your GUI. There's a representation there of an image, and then it's coming out on a printer that's having to turn that into a mechanical product for you. Yeah. Right. So I think when you look at the complexity of that, you think about the complexity of what he's saying about these metaphors for communication between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind and how difficult it is to make that connection. Mm -hmm. He actually talks about how you manage this connection between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. And again, the first thing I thought of is the training you undergo to become proficient at controlled remote viewing. A large part of that process is about learning how to teach your conscious mind not to make any predeterminations about the messages it's seeking to receive from the yeah. subconscious mind. Front-loading. Yeah, front-loading, exactly. He seemed to be using the word subconscious and unconscious very deliberately in his book. And so I don't, I don't know necessarily what Tyson's getting at there, but I decided to look that up. And I found this interesting article by Leon Seltzer, PhD. He's actually the author of Paradoxical Strategies in Psychotherapy and the vision of Melville and Conrad. He holds doctorates in English and psychology, and uh, this gentleman's posts at Psychology Today online have received over 44 million views. We have a link to this article. But I just wanted to read an excerpt here about the difference between the unconscious mind and the subconscious mind. These are excerpts from that. Differentiating between the unconscious and the subconscious is tricky, and in fact, it's been noted by several authors that in common parlance, they're employed interchangeably, and by many professional writers as well. As in distinguishing between that which is repressed versus suppressed, it's useful to think of conscious awareness as analogous to the tip of an iceberg. It's above the water, so completely visible. The unconscious and subconscious, while taken together, are far larger than what the eye can see. Both exist below what's readily noticeable. So the only meaningful way they can be set apart is through understanding their relative inaccessibility. In short, with some introspection, you can likely identify from where your thinking, impulse, or motivation is subconsciously derived. But with what's unconscious to you, the bottommost part of the iceberg, it will be much more difficult to ascertain the origins of present-day behavior that literally don't make much sense to you. Potentially, you might discover its source through some form of self-therapy, dream analysis, free association, analyzing a slip of your tongue, or by chance witnessing someone else who experienced the same trauma you did. In general, though, it's much more likely that you could successfully unveil its origins through the assistance of a mental health professional. He goes on to say, here are a couple of examples to consider. Subconscious. You dimly recognize that you feel a certain jealousy toward your teenage son. You don't know why. In reflecting about it, however, 
you begin to realize that where this feeling stems from is that subconsciously you begrudge the fact that he has so many more opportunities and privileges than you did at his age. Unconscious, he says, you have an aversion toward asparagus. The very sight of it makes you nauseous. Still, you have absolutely no idea why. What, because it's been represented, isn't available to your consciousness is that when you were six, your father insisted you eat this new-to-you vegetable on your plate, although you protested for its smell back then was repulsive to you. But because you weren't permitted to leave the table until you consumed it, after a fidgety hour, you tried to shove it down your throat and promptly vomited. Even worse, you got screamed at for the mess you made and told you were disgusting. <laughs> so, uh, mm. and you know, coming back to my own thoughts here, that's a psychological approach to the difference in those terms, although there are definitions of the two words that indicate their synonyms in many situations. But according to psychological professionals, there are clear differences between the psychological definitions of subconscious and unconscious. The iceberg metaphor comes up all over the place when you start looking into this, and at the very bottom of the iceberg is the unconscious portion of your mind. So the question I have right out of the gate here is, is Tyson suggesting that rather than some kind of Akashic record, which he touches on in the book, when uh, one is, you know, that you're tapping into, when one is practicing scrying, you're actually accessing an inner, almost omniscient type of knowledge that apparently we all may possess as opposed to tapping into that record of all knowledge and things and then trying to figure out how to interpret it as it enters our minds through the trap door of the most pushed back part of our consciousness, the unconscious mind. Did you follow that? I did, but I have, uh, I was going to ask you if you noticed in the book where Tyson explains this difference between what is considered the subconscious or the unconscious. He doesn't. He just uses the word. You didn't see it either. Separately, okay. I didn't see. Okay. I, that's what drove me to look it up on my own. I see. That's and what I, I can't. Okay. And again, I'll restate this. I can't say that he would agree with what I found, or that he even looked into it as deeply as I did. I was going to ask you: Did you get a sense of Tyson and explaining how scrying works, really? And I, I did, but you have to read a lot of it. I, I don't think there is any section that, unless I missed it, where he explains the mechanism. It's a little vague. It's like remote viewing. Yeah. They they don't really know how it works, and they seem to not be concerned with that. They okay. just want to get better at it. And I feel like he's right. kind of in the same camp. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not categorically saying, I don't know how it works, but he's not getting super specific about it either. There were some takeaways from his book that I took that I thought were really fascinating. And one of the biggest ones that was that the information came from within and not from without. It seemed to be that he right. was applying that, which I felt like what I took away from passages in the book was that the information was in your unconscious mind. And what you're doing is yeah. tapping into it. And, right. I, you know, I don't want to go further than that right now until we get to the conclusions. There's a couple, yeah, a couple we're of talk about short that. little things to point out before we do that. But let's come back to that in a second. Well, okay, because this uh, points to that. This is a little something that uh, we had pared down here, but it's something Quaid found. Uh, and it is... One uh, of our researchers in the Astonishing yes. Research Corps. Which, by the way, the whole team did a great job. So thank you yes, guys Yes, thank that. you very much. Uh, this came from an article on exploringtraditions.com, uh, The Art of Scrying. Quaid found this excerpt here. Now, this, this is interesting. This is an interesting dude that uh, we should read up on and uh, maybe delve into. Franz Bardon, who I just read his bio in the, uh, the Amazon page that accompanies some of these books that he has written on all sorts of metaphysical, paranormal-type subjects. It's pretty wild in that uh, I think at the age of 12 or a very young age, hermeticist Franz Bardon was, you could say, inhabited by, I wouldn't say possessed, but inhabited by a higher 
intelligence power, benevolent one, but one that was instructing him <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And uh, that's a lot of where these books come from. But anyway, aside from all that craziness, this is a passage that comes from Franz Bardon about how scrying may work. Quote, the mirror as a tool for this psychoanalytical purpose functions solely through the individual. What an individual perceives through the mirror is solely based upon their perception and the very limits of their own subconscious, which become reflected within the mirror. In other words, what you are opening up to subconsciously plays out virtually on the mirror. Hmm. So here's the idea. You're tapping into yourself. It does reflect a little bit about what Tyson says. Yeah. You know, that's what they say. When you look in the mirror, you're really looking into yourself. And it's a, uh, a, a method also of self-introspection. So it's a literal and a figurative exercise. It's both at once, according to these folks. Yeah, that, these are, again, I mean, how do we really know what's going on? And, and it may have been uh, divined from the angels. <laughs> Just maybe they have a better idea. But then can you trust Edward Kelly? Can you trust these other sources? Do you really know? That's a very personal thing. I think that's where this is all going, is that the information you receive, it's a personal question. It's a very personal answer. The method is very personal in how you do it. And it works for some people with certain mediums and and uh, techniques, and it doesn't for others. Well, that's a perfect segue for my last point before we get to our conclusions. And that's the thing about the method. The, the book is all about all these different methodologies, and there's a certain amount of ceremony to it. And you you see this ceremony that goes back to John Dee and this insanely complex sigil and the table can't touch the ground. And Tyson talks about wearing special clothes and being in a special room and having all these special tools. But at the same time, he goes out of his way to say, you know what? The materials don't matter. They don't right. matter. They are aids. They are something that helps you do this, but they're more about making you comfortable and helping you get right. where you need to be. Then if you don't do it this way, you don't get to access the information. It's about facilitating what you as an individual are trying to achieve. Yeah. It also reminds me of a, an old quote. Uh, it's often said by magician Ricky Jay. Beware of any endeavor that requires a new wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. have to go. Uh, maybe you're going to try it. <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah. We year, saw maybe. him uh, having dinner. Sushi in LA. I mean, that's the idea, though, is that does this other stuff matter? Because I think as we paint this picture here, they can aid you in your endeavors to gain this outside information. But you're going to have to experiment with it. You're going to have to find out what works for you. And maybe it does make a difference. Maybe it doesn't. There's a whole lot of unknowns, and there's no agreed-upon methodology, unlike, as I said at the beginning, controlled remote viewing, which has been developed, and its aim is to take this somewhat mysterious process, certainly, but pare it down into a repeatable, defined methodology. Very efficient as well. Getting these impressions and being able to report them in a very standardized way, because otherwise it's really hard to measure how well you're doing. You know what I'm saying? If you don't do it the same, well, that's a scientific method, repeatability under the same conditions every time. Yeah. And that's the thing about this and controlled remote viewing. It's something that they have in, in common. It feels a little bit to me like, let's say you go out into the desert and you find a UFO at Roswell and it's not crashed. It's still there. And there's no beings there, but there's this UFO. It has control surfaces and panels 
and you're trying to figure out how to operate it. That's what these processes feel like to me. Mm. Uh, learning controlled remote viewing is less about, or, or learning to scry, and I'm not saying these are the same thing. I just feel like they have common ground. It's less about what is this thing and how does it work and more about how do I operate it? I don't care mm-hmm. how it works. I don't care even what it is. How do I operate this? And that what? is this strange feeling that I get with this, you know, and there's one last quote I want to read before we get into our final thoughts here. This is from page 84 of Tyson's book, where he talks about invoking the guardian angel. He says, quote, it is common in traditional scrying to invoke the aid of a God or angel. If you are a Christian, the best way to do this is to simply recite the Lord's prayer or one of the Psalms that is appropriate for your purpose and call upon the presence of Jesus or one of the saints. If you are pagan or Wiccan, you will prefer to invoke the goddess in one of her lunar aspects. Selene, Luna, Artemis, Ishtar, and Isis are all lunar goddesses. So again, this comes back to the idea of, and this is me speaking, I should have said it Mm -hmm. in quote, him being completely non-denominational and this whole idea that all these scrying methods, there's a ton of different methods, but the reason for all of these different methods, and he doesn't say, oh, that won't work or this won't work. It's like you mentioned about the eyelids, which he doesn't mention in his book, but clearly you found evidence of that somewhere else. They are just because there's so many different people and whatever thing works for them. And and coming back to the idea that Ed Kelly needed to describe this complex sigil, that wasn't about, oh, we all have to use that sigil or it's not going to work for us. That would have been, if you believe all of this, if you believe any of this at all, mm-hmm. this would have been about, that's what Edward Kelly and John D needed to see to believe it was working for them or to make it work mm-hmm. for them. It was that sigil. So it has no value to us, maybe. I don't know. But that's why he goes through the, all these lists of different methods. Right. My overall take on this force, and I'm, you know, I'm ready to wrap this up, is that I'm a bit incredulous about this overall. And I think I made a reference to this earlier in the show tonight. <laughs> hmm. I think a lot of people think ever since I went through the Sally House experience that I just believe everything that comes along. <laughs> and in what I'm saying now, I mean absolutely no disrespect to Donald Tyson or to anyone else who's interested in scrying. And I'm not saying that I categorically don't believe in it. But when I read this book, I think about, uh, you know, that story record album that you and I referenced so much, the Nielsen album, The Point, mm-hmm. uh, which has the component of the story that mentions a point in every direction is the same as no point at all. And that's what I see here. I just see like, there's, here's every kind of method in the words, the screwdriver method, it's the pencil method, it's the glass method, it's the obsidian, it's the crystal ball, it's the Oh, you can look at a mirror. You can do it with candlelight. Nope, you have to be in the total darkness or you can do whatever. It's just whatever for everybody. And at that point, I'm like, what are we even talking about here? In a lot of ways, it feels like you're sitting down and you're talking about, well, I'm going to stare at the embers in the fire. I'm actually going to stare at the flames. Well, no, I'm going to look up and stare at the smoke. I'm going to look at these different things. And it's going to put me into this frame of mind that's going to allow me to receive information. So what this feels like to me, based on what I know about this and what very, very, very little I know about remote viewing from like one class that we took, one introductory class. <laughs> yeah, you really have no, we have no uh, room to speak. No, about. we have none. And I, I, I'm completely admitting that, but it was enough of a glimmer into this looking behind the curtain when from that one class. What I'm seeing here is for me personally, I seeing another approach to trying to get to the same information. And I prefer the one that is more regimented and well-defined as opposed to this other one that seems vague and ritualistic and ceremonial to a point that I feel like maybe that's muddying the waters. And it's hard to say this, but it feels a little bit like that's you're doing it wrong. I mean, you're getting stuff, but you guys, I don't know if this is the right way. This other way feels like it makes more sense to me. But again, I recognize that's a subjective experience. Why are you that impressed then with 
remote viewing? Because the big one of the big takeaways here, which I wasn't aware of until I you know we started the book, is how closely linked in a lot of ways, not every way, but in a lot of ways, this is to remote viewing. I didn't expect to talk about remote viewing, maybe at all, but certainly not as much as we have mm -hmm. in discussing this. And I know how impressed you are with remote viewing. Part of it is you experienced it. There is no better hit you over the head a, a teacher and a impression maker than a interesting experience that is outside of your daily realm. So why then for you is one different and more believable because I you were wowed by it. You were wowed by remote viewing. Uh, I was there and because you got some results the very first time you tried it. Now, here's the thing. It may not be a fair comparison because you haven't tried scrying. Yeah. And I have also haven't seen it in practice. And I don't know of any, I couldn't right. find anything of famous scryers aside from Nostradamus, which again, that's so big and so long yeah. ago, it's hard to use that to judge this entire process by. But I didn't find a lot of evidence of like, oh yeah, I do this and I got all this information, whatever. Yes, I know remote viewers who have really high success rates. I don't know any scryers and I, at all. And I don't know <laughs> well, any that do anything, and which, by the way, is is, is yeah. on me. And you're right. Yeah, if I sat down and scribed and got some crazy piece of information, because and, and what Forrest is referring to, folks, is in a in a beginning remote viewing class, and we still haven't identified whether or not they call when you're trying to remote view something, they call it a target. And we haven't spoken with our instructor about whether or not we can reveal the target that we took in this training class, because she might still be using it in some online courses. So no, it's not important. No, it's, it's not, not important, important, but, but it, I'm, I'm trying to frame my experience. I'll just go so far as to say that using this very simple process that I learned in a couple of hours, I was able to ascertain what I would call uh, fairly reliable information that was in the 60th percentile or, or so of describing what the target was. And I don't know where it came from and I didn't control where it came from. And the experience of understanding how close I got in some aspects to what it was, was really all defined about that disconnect, which Tyson talks about too, disconnecting the conscious mind from the subconscious input. And the other thing that I am wondering about this and what Tyson is saying here, and the thing that I wanted to propose in my conclusions here, is that there seems to be an implication from him that the information is coming from within your own mind and body and spirit. Mm -hmm. My thought is, what if the subconscious mind or the subconscious and unconscious mind actually exist without our bodies? They're not corporeal. What if we're all tethered, matrix style, but in an imaginal and invisible way to this giant, you know, the thing we refer to as the Akashic record. And then what happens when we scry or we do remote viewing or whatever is we're just becoming more aware or becoming better at receiving information on this tether. And when there's spirits that are involved, they're there to help you make that connection to this grand database that we're all walking around connected to all the time, that's actually not a part of our person. But in order to get to it, you have to go through these practices to get to that information. And then the next question I have is if there are spirits involved in re helping you relay that information, whether it's the Estes method or scrying or remote viewing, uh, some of the other kinds of remote viewing or whatever it is, why are these spirits or beings trying to help you even do this. Like once you move on and you're outside of this, or even if you were never here in the first place, what is the point in trying to help us get vague information about something from the future? Why are you even bothered with it? I would feel like once you pass, it's like, oh my gosh, all this information, love, light, everything. It's like, why am I hanging around trying to 
you know, explain to somebody where their keys are. So that's a little bit of the, all the questions that I have that, that came out of this, I guess. Yeah. You're all over the place here, my friend. I know. I know, I know. <laughs> Look, what you're talking about here opens up the big can of metaphysical worm because kind of what you're talking about now is the nature of our consciousness that we discussed in the near death experience series that we did. Remember the two part series with Rich? Yep. And you haven't seen this yet, but it's also touched upon in the series Surviving Death. And a little while ago, one of our great listeners, Claire Dwyer, sent us a paper. Actually, it's a book called Irreducible Mind, colon, Toward a Psychology for the 21st Century. Get this. Uh, it was in the, this came out in uh, January 20th, 2007. One of the authors, Edward F. Kelly. I don't think the same no, Edward yes, Kelly. and there are six <laughs> authors, that, but yeah, that is interesting. There are six authors, yeah. but also one of them is Bruce Grayson, who we've talked about in the NDE series, and I believe also makes an appearance or is mentioned in the Surviving Death series. So, yeah, but here's the brief explanation. Current mainstream scientific opinion holds that all aspects of human mind and consciousness are generated by physical processes occurring in the brain. Your consciousness is just part of that chunk of meat above your eyeballs. Yeah. Starts there, ends there. End of story. <laughs> what I just said was not in the description, of course. I was being a little flip. Uh, but that's what the thinking is, is that your consciousness is just residing in the brain tissue itself. However, uh, the description goes on to say, this book presents empirical evidence that this reductive materialism is not only incomplete, but false. Topics addressed include phenomena of extreme psychophysical influence, memory, psychological automatisms, and secondary personality, near-death experiences, and allied phenomena, genius-level creativity, and mystical states of consciousness, both spontaneous and drug-induced. The authors show that these rogue phenomena are more readily accommodated by an alternative transmission or filter theory of mind-brain relations, a theory that ratifies the common-sense conception of human beings as causally effective conscious agents. It is also fully compatible with leading-edge physics and neuroscience. This book should command the attention of all open-minded persons concerned with the still unsolved mysteries of the mind. So hmm. what we're talking about here is that does consciousness reside outside of your physical brain? Because this was the whole gist about the near-death experience. When your body shuts down... Which is what I just said a few minutes ago, by the way. Yeah. I had no that's idea. What, that's what, I mean, I know Claire sent us this, but I didn't catch all that from this. So right. that's interesting to me that you're like two minutes later, you're like, uh, here's a book all about it. So Well, this, it, is, it, this is what I'm saying is that Ed this Kelly. is... Kelly. <laughs> well, that's the weird part I did not uh, realize. I Certainly, yeah. we talked about Dr. Bruce Grayson, but... Uh, was not expecting to make the Ed Kelly connection. What they're talking about here, though, is it's like when you, and, and people would argue this, like, look, remember in Dying Rats, they have the same uh, spark and uh, all this brain activity happens right before they die and then they die, lights out. In humans, when you have the near-death experience, basically the argument is that people who would say consciousness resides inside the brain, consciousness is just a part of physicality, materialistic. It just resides there when you die, lights out. But we all have this uh, trigger, this tape plays. You're about to die. You go into a panic mode. Your body uh, subconsciously, unconsciously plays the tape of you going down the tunnel with the white light and you're seeing dead relatives greet you. We all do that. Well, the counter argument to that is that 
okay, that process happens because they can trigger that. Nah, I didn't want to get into it here, but you know, it's with the God helmet, this and that. It triggers the same white light, and that can be electrotemporal stimulation. You see the white light, all these other things happen, except that when people have a near-death experience, they've had it after brain activity has ceased completely. So how is that possible? That should not be happening scientifically. Your brain is dead. There is no electrical impulses or activity going on at all. You're flatlining in, in your brain waves. Yet in those minutes when somebody's actually clinically dead, they're having this experience. How is that possible? Right. So that's the counter argument to this. So then does that mean at least part of your consciousness exists outside of your body? Well, mainstream science would say that's impossible because there's no such thing as a spirit world. You don't go anywhere. You die. You rot. End of story. So I asked you, why would you believe one over the other? And of course, my assessment of you is that you're an engineer type. You like the processes. You like being presented with a methodology that's solid, studied by the military, studied by scientists, at least at places like the Stanford Research Institute, where it's been formulated and the mumbo jumbo has been stripped away. The woo-woo is taken away. And that's allowing you to believe it more. But if you look at both processes of scrying and you say, and again, I think maybe this is an unfair comparison because you haven't tried the other one and you might see some stuff that blows you away that turns out to be true. You don't know yet. Or maybe nothing happens. I think what made an impact on you is your very first trial of CRV. And that's what makes it so fascinating to me. You got some results your very first time. How is that possible? Well, maybe you got lucky, beginner's luck, who knows? But you haven't tried scrying, but look at the methodology. Both processes of remote viewing and scrying employ the same thing, as we've just seen throughout this episode. You clear your mind. You get into a mind-clearing meditative state in control remote viewing. Those are called set-asides. You tell yourself, okay, I got into a fight with the, uh, the uh, cable sales guy today. He was pushing me for stuff, and I got upset, but I'm going to set that aside I had an argument with my child today or where they were acting up and I'm going to set that aside and not pay attention to that. What are you hoping for in this session? And then you set your intention. What are you hoping for? What do you hope to gain? And in CRV, you write that down. And that's part of the process too. It's like, okay, well, uh, it's been a very distracting morning, but I'm sitting down now and I really hope to achieve uh, some insight on this target. And I'm going to do my best, blah, blah, blah. So that's your setting of intention after clearing your mind and it's kind of the same thing with scrying. So there's a whole process here. And I think that's what appealed to you is that it wasn't, I was in the moonlight at midnight and looking into the, 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 the brass tripod because yes. that's the woo-woo part. And that's the part you can't get a handle on. And I'm not, it's not a, it's- No, it's, no, no, you're, you're right. not entirely right. You're a little <laughs> right here, but you're not all the way right. right. I just want to quickly tell you- what appealed to me was the fact that I got results. Well, that's what I'm no saying. You I haven't tried the, you, that's what, yeah. But I mean, I have respect right. for the DR60 and that is woo-woo and crazy. And that's the, our digital recorder that gets crazy ghost recordings for people that don't know. We say DR60 all the time and I realize we don't explain that. But my point is, you're right. I am an engineer, all that stuff. Your assessment of me, I like systems. I like to understand right. the process. I'd like to have it laid out. You're a thousand percent right about all of that. But the thing that impressed me the most about it was that I sat down and I did it once yeah. and I had amazing results. And I, I have no idea how it works. And even the people who are teaching me who are essentially right. black belts in it 
aren't really sure how it works either. They just know how to teach you how to do it. Well, they know what the process is. But here's my point, though. You're saying, well, I'm incredulous of scrying without having tried it. So, uh, yes, but there's another part to that. It's also the fact that there's 50,000 different, there is, there is no scrying. There's like, look at a mirror, look in the <laughs> smoke, is, look yeah. at the flyer, look at your this eyelids. This is what I'm telling you. This is what I'm telling you is that it doesn't matter. This is the whole point of the whole episode tonight. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter what you stare into. There's, there's the reflective type. There's the seeing through the medium type. You're looking into the crystal ball as there are different types of remote viewing. There's applied remote viewing. There is associative remote viewing. It's not all one type of Kung Fu, my friend. So why does that matter? You know, what does it matter what uh, your process is? Well, it depends on what you're after. And it depends on the type of person you are and how good you are. There's people that they say, it was like, you know, if you're really psychic, do you need CRV? Because there's people who sit down and they're not really using the methodology of remote viewing and the way it's laid out. And they will tell you like, well, you're doing that through another means, which is a psychic means. And so that's a different process. Getting back to that, it's like, well, you're then hung up on the other stuff of like the oil in the cup and the the crystal balls and all these devices. And why do you have so many of them? Well, it doesn't really matter. That's what I'm saying, because the initial process is the same. You sit down, you clear your mind, you get into a meditative state, you openly ask and set intention that you want this information. And we didn't talk about it, but what Tyson would say is that uh, there's two things about it. You have to be very specific in the information you get. Otherwise, you might just get a bunch of crap that doesn't make sense. But here's a, it's a two-sided uh, coin here, is that one, yeah, you have to be very specific about what you ask for. Otherwise, you just get to get a bunch of nonsense or nothing at all. But on the other side of that coin, if you are very specific, the information is harder to come by. It doesn't come as easily because it is so specific. So that's the balance you have to have. But aside from that, all these methodologies and these different types of scrying and what we've been talking about does not matter. It's whatever works for you. But the mechanism is the same. And so what remote viewing would tell you, when, because that's the one question I think I brought up at the very beginning. People always ask, well, where does this information come from? I have to know. And what your CRV instructors, your remote viewing instructors would tell you is that it can come from wherever you want. If you want to think it's God, if you want to think it's the Akashic record, if you want to think it's from your deep mind, as uh, Tyson would say, your deep mind, subconscious or unconscious, that's fine. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. All we know is that this process seems to work because we can get amazing results with this. So maybe the most important thing isn't what you learn about where this information comes from or learn about how best to attain it. Maybe the most important thing you learn is what you learn about yourself. That's going to wrap up tonight's show. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. 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 My name is Jay Rich. That is J-O-E-H-A-M-H-A-R-D. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. 
Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.